0: Oh. Hello. That was weird. Yeah, Can you a, hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? I. You must have like started. I, it never rang. I hit connect, and then it just like as soon as I hit the button, it was you. You were there. Wait. There was no you, ringing. Were you calling me? I was calling you. Were you oh, calling? Oh, I was
1: calling you. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> oh, where's my? Oh, there we go. There's my bill. <laughs> That's. We a... That used to happen on the. Did, were are you are you uh, old enough that you've ever? E you, D ever had that experience on the uh, the actual telephone?
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I uh, I've definitely had uh, the, that experience where things like popped up and and it's like you pick up the phone, you're like, wait, hello, Is, I'm trying to call you. Are you are you there? Yeah, we I had a we we had a rotary phone, Don, when I was growing <laughs> up. Tick, tick, tick. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, we should. Should
1: we to explain cards. to the kids what a rotary phone is?
0: Uh, I mean, just let them go to Wikipedia. Because we'll, <laughs> that's all we're going to do anyway. <laughs> exactly. We'll link to it in show notes. Uh, weird. All right. We'll see you. I was. I was doing some email. I was early today. I just want to let the record show that. I have turned a new leaf, Don. Well, le- no, let's, ex-
1: let's explain. You were on time today, and I was late. So, yes, by by yeah. normal by normal standards, you were early. So, yeah. And you know what it was? like. So we're starting like 15 minutes late. What it was, Ben, was I hit the snooze button on my phone <laughs> twice this morning. And so the whole day, now I'm going to be, because I don't know if you know this on iPhone, when you, when you hit the snooze, it snoozes for nine minutes for some strange reason. So I'm going to be basically 18 minutes behind my entire day.
0: That's that's it. You're yeah, you'll you'll go to bed 18 minutes late tonight.
1: Exactly. I'll never catch up.
0: You never catch up. And it's is it going to how will that re- reflect in tomorrow? Is the real question. <laughs> well, this-
1: I guess the question is, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, am I going to hit snooze again? I mean, Jesus. This this could be this could be catastrophic, Ben.
0: You may just have to catch up when we turn the clocks back. <laughs> I think so. That's it. You just just you know no, note it every day from from here until uh spring <laughs> forward, fall back until until the uh until the fall. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, yeah, cuz clearly
0: that's the only solution. It is, yeah, yeah, and and hopefully you can just stay on that track uh, when that happens. And instead of an extra hour, you'll really only get well at that point probably like an extra sixteen minutes with all the <laughs> snoozes that you do in between now and the fall. Uh, oh, Don, I've I've had a I've had kind of a wonder, wonderful nice quiet weekend. Of I, I am I, I've talked to you about uh, resubscribing to the getting things done uh, process mm. and. Jumping in um, to lots of OmniFocus and using – I'm using Slack and all that kind of stuff. And Friday night was was awesome for me because I like actually did what I'm supposed to do and it, it moved into this morning, which is I reviewed all my projects on Friday afternoon while I was drinking a beer right before I talked to you. And then uh, again, this morning I got up and spent half an hour, and I was like, "Wait, where am I? What do I? What do I have to do?" And I feel I feel good. I'm I, just knowing what I need to work on is kind of fun.
1: Well, that's that's yeah. It sounds like you're doing getting things done uh, correctly uh, and using OmniFocus correctly. I'm I'm still um, on the OmniFocus. Um, Uh, train. uh, And I and I'm but I'm not doing it correctly. I'm not doing weekly reviews. I'm using deadline, I'm using um, reminders, or I'm using deadlines in the way that you're not supposed to use them. But uh, but I do feel like my inbox is mostly under control. My OmniFocus inbox is somewhat under control. And my task list is a little out of control. But I but I feel I feel good. Like I can tell you, for example, um, I have 24 overdue tasks and 26 tasks that are due today. Now that's not I mean, so really, what I'm doing is each time I look at that, I'm doing a, like a weekly review and I'm, I'm pushing stuff up stuff into the future. But I, I feel, um, it's, it feels good to have my, my email inbox, um, mostly under control. And every, I know that everything that I have to do is in OmniFocus and it has a deadline, even though that deadline is not a real deadline. Um, and so it feels, it feels good. It doesn't feel as like I'm doing it completely correctly, but, uh, it's, it, it feels, it feels, it feels better than it has felt in the past where I've got some stuff in OmniFocus and some stuff on a paper list and some stuff in my inbox. You know, I like, it's good to have things in mostly in one place, you know,
0: it is. And being able to trust that. Look, yes. Spot, exa- right? Yes. So
1: that, that, that place has everything that I have to do. Yes.
0: That, yeah, that, that's been, so, you – you don't know this, but you were a, a minor in, inspiration to me. Oh, OK. <laughs> I don't know why, okay. why I just like said minor. So when we <laughs> were together and I – like not like a major – I had to qualify. Yeah, that's fine. Qualify
1: It's OK. I mean don't, you yeah. know, don't give me undue credit.
0: Yeah. No, it was, but so at some point, you and I were walking at IAFP and you made yourself a note with uh, – using Siri or did something – or maybe answers, so I don't know exactly what you're doing. But it I made me think, I was like, you know, instead of me waiting to get somewhere to actually text it, I should try and use the Siri functionality more than I do. And the part of the reason why I have not used Siri so much is because of the frustrating texting to, like, voice-to-text stuff. But when it comes to, like, OmniFocus lists, or not lists, um, uh, inbox tasks... Um, it may, it's it's like oh well I, I know I'm going to clean that up later and I should understand what it is I was talking about so so I like saw that I don't know why I just snapped but I saw that and then I uh, was like oh I should do more of that so I've been doing more of that yeah you know
1: there there are parts of the and we'll link to uh, we'll link to uh, the GTD website and because we're talking about this in case people don't know what we're talking about um but yeah there's a, a number of aspects of the getting things done methodology that I have completely just. Absorbed, right? And and one is um, uh, the two minute rule, and another one is is capture. I I really try uh, to to be scrupulous in my capture because I know if I don't, I I, the, I have I've I like I know that telling myself oh I'll remember that later is just not going to work, right? And so actually one of my ones that I do all the time, um, is, uh, when I'm leaving the house, I will often, um, go by the front of the house and I will see that the bird feeder is empty. And so I am like, my most common reminder is remind me to refill the bird feeder when I get <laughs> home. Cause I, and I do that one all the time. Um, because inevitably that's cause I, cause I, I see it when I'm leaving the house and because of, uh, geofencing on reminders, um, I can like, you know, I can know. I can know that, right? Like that. That that's that's going to be um, something that I'm going to want to see, but not until I get back home.
0: Right. 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 Yeah. Oh, that's good. Well, fa- fascinating. This makes for good radio, right? Um, it, I was talking does. about our tasks and stuff. Um, so other other than that, I I mean, I had a really nice, I had a great weekend because I did. Um, this this was the first uh, weekend in maybe most of the summer where we had nothing, like no. No lacrosse, no swimming, no birthday parties. We didn't go anywhere. Um, I woke up on Saturday morning and said said to my the lovely Danielle, my wife, and said, you, you, "At some point this afternoon, at like one o'clock, you're going to be bored with what we have on our schedule today, and you're going to suggest we do something." And I, and we're, the boys and I are going to rally against you right now and just say, "No, we're going to hang out at home all day." And and she laughed and and took that uh, fully in stride. So that's that was our our weekend. Was like we went to the pool and we had a fire and cooked and did like very little it was like a little mini vacation at home um i d- walked a dog yesterday for um like a mile and which is not something that i usually do on the weekends and it was it was really great so
1: yeah and i the the you know and my as as you know and as listeners of the podcast know my my kids are are grown um but we do still have dogs that need to be walked but yeah the the more the older I get, the more I really just don't want to do anything or go anywhere and and having no nothing especially scheduled is just feels great like I just i mean because i mean i've you know it's not like I'm not going to be doing stuff it's right like I don't have infinite things to do but but i really i really don't like that feeling of of, well, and it's the same with a busy week at work. I really don't like those days or those weeks at work where I feel like actually for at the IAFP meeting too, like where I'm just like so tightly scheduled. Like this, we we recorded um, at uh, IAFP, and that was the last episode to come out. But I and I, I think we talked about this a little bit. I don't know about it on the podcast, but in in real life, we did. And the meeting for me was really good because I had a bunch of stuff that I was scheduled to do. But I also had a a, a plenty of like walking around time and running into people time. And it really was just really, it was just really nice that I didn't, I didn't feel like I was, I was constantly rushing from place to place, you know, never really finishing one thing before I had to go on to the next. It was like, no, I can, I've got, I've got, uh, you know, 45 minutes between these two things. And so I'm going to go walk over here and I'm going to sit down. Um, and maybe I'll do some email and maybe somebody that I know will come up to me and talk and that will be total fine. Like, and that, and that would happen. Right. And I would get a few, I would answer a few emails and then somebody would come up and we would just like talk and it would be, be totally fine because I had time, you know, between one thing and the next thing and I wasn't rushing. And that, that's just a really, that's a nice feeling.
0: It is. And what you described in that, like you have a really busy week or a busy day or that busy meeting is to me increasingly is this like feeling of dread <laughs> like it's and it's not in it i mean it feels negative and it's not negative because of the things it's just there are things I need to do that are not things I can do right now, but they're on my schedule, and they're gonna keep me from getting into something else right like it's even just like starting starting something there there's something very freeing about having nothing on a schedule and and ha- also having time to um to dedicate to do stuff and but on no one, no one's other, no one's schedule other than mine right now. Um, so I, I have, I have one of those, I have a day today where we have this nice uh, conversation, which is always awesome. And then this afternoon I have to drive to, to Greensboro to, to give a, a couple of talks to um, uh, high school um, family and consumer science teachers and, and county directors for those programs. And I will, when I get there, I will very much enjoy that talk and that conversation. Everything's going to be going fine. But after we get done at 11 o'clock today until 1230 when I leave, I'm going to have this like feeling of, oh, I have to go do something so I can't start something else. Yeah, It's a weird, it's weird, right? Like, I don't know how to, uh, what I'm trying to do is get better at using those pockets of time and say, well, i, I can 't get into something else that like I can't get into everything, but there are these two or three things that I could do in this amount of time that I have that 'll make me feel like i 've accomplished something and i 'm not just sitting around on twitter
1: well yeah and or i you know, i can I can clear out my email inbox, I can clean up a list in omnifocus right I mean those. To me, that's right. the, the, like, like, and I'll feel better about that because I'll make sure that there's nothing, there's no surprises waiting for me or anything that it really, that might be urgent that I, that I could take care of in this, this limited window that I have before I have to go leave and do a thing. Right,
0: right, right. All of that, all of that. That's yeah. Um, it, I, I just feel like my life is constantly going between those like, boxes of time that i i can fill up doing whatever i want and those other like scheduled times and me just longing for the time that i don't have anything on my schedule Is that is that sort of like? Do you have that same kind of situation, where you're just like, oh, I wish I wish that three people would cancel things today, or maybe there'll be a big accident, and I not not that I want people to get hurt, but there'll be some some the 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 road is washed out, and I will have a legitimate excuse to not go do this thing.
1: Oh yeah, like when when stuff gets canceled, it's like I always tell people, it's like, look, if you want me to do a thing, like let me put it on my calendar, because if we end up not doing that thing that is the best feeling in the world. That now it's I've true. protected this this time, um, and now it's like free time that I get back. So yeah,
0: I've, absolutely. Um, so I oh I want to talk about something that's not in the of course not in our um, uh, our Dropbox folder, but um, and this I, I, you know I, I rarely talk about the the lovely Danielle, which is the name that our friend Gordon Hayburn has given my wife. Um, <laughs> But she has been listening to uh, a podcast, which is notable because she doesn't – she thinks, the, obviously, going back to the history of this program, that uh, people that listen to podcasts, especially a certain food safety podcast, can only be shut-ins. Um, she has been listening to a podcast on on her own that is about murders. <laughs> which, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. And it's called My Favorite Murder. Um. And in turn, uh, I have also been listening to this podcast because it's broadcast throughout my house all, all the time. Um, and it's pretty, uh, it, it's pretty good. So it's a, I'm going straight from Wikipedia here. It's a true, com, true crime comedy podcast hosted by two comedians, Karen uh, Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstack. And Kilgareff, she worked on Mr. Show and also was a writer for Ellen. Hmm. Um, and it's hilarious. You should check it out um they're it's really you know they go back to 2000 and um 2016 and it was just the two of them who are interested in true co- crime and are both funny talking about it and they have gone from like recording in someone's uh living room together to doing these live shows and this is this is why I wanted to tell you about it so they are coming to Durham um, North Carolina, and their live shows. Don, this is where we've somehow we've gone wrong. Um, they charge like it's about two hundred dollars a ticket to go to a live show at a big theater, and I think we're not doing that, right? Like that's yes, I don't we're, know.
1: No, we're, we're not doing that. We could charge, we could charge two hundred dollars a ticket, um, and we would go from having uh, six people to having zero people. I'm pretty sure. <laughs>
0: Well, should we just talk about murders?
1: Oh, oh, oh! oh what well, you're saying is not the charging thing; it's the topic thing.
0: Oh, all of it. Oh, I okay. Think, like it seems like they're yeah, whatever they're doing, they've captured something that that we have not, um, we we haven't figured out.
1: I agree. So the first the first step is we have to become two women.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, I'm in. I'm in for that. All right. Uh, I so, think that be a deal breaker for you, right there. No, no. I mean, I mean, this. It seems like it's, it's you know, working this for is, them. I, i'm like we're just workshopping here right like right. we have i haven't committed to anything uh <laughs> i think you just committed to a sex change I mean, no, everything's on the table everything's i'm just saying oh uh, uh anyway check out the this podcast um add it add it to your queue if you if you have a chance because they're they're hilarious and it's another um it's another awesome thing just going back to one of the things that that uh, Dan Benjamin mentioned to us when when he so graciously talked about our podcast and uh, to us about finding this really interesting niche and then creating a a following or listenership, you know, finding other people out there on the internet that are also really interested in this and presented in a in a um, in, in a very specific kind of way. And it's it was it's cool. It's like I enjoy it for the. Um, not only for the content and, and the personalities, but just for the craft of, of podcast making, um, and it's cool. So, anyway, I've been inspired by listening to this, and and Danny um, suggested that one of her favorite parts of my favorite my favorite murder is that listeners, because we we have lots of feedback, and we're going to get into our feedback here in a minute, but the listeners send in um, their stories of like hometown murders. <laughs> Not not like they're murdering people. Um and obviously murder is not always a, a funny topic, but for this podcast it is. Uh but but one of the things that that we we have on our feedback is uh we often um get really great questions about things that you know kind of like well what do you what do you guys think about this or I have a food safety question about this specific um, uh, process or, you know, I've, I've read about this thing. What What's the, what, what do you think? Is there a risk here? What's the risk? And, w- but what I, what I kind of want to hear about, so this is, this is, I'm springing this on you, you Don, and um, we'll, we'll see if this, we may have to cut this out. Um, but I also want to hear about um, when people get sick or if they have had, if they've seen something in a foodborne illness outbreak kind of thing to be able to just write us a little write us a little like narrative about what you, what you see and then we'll read some of those as feedback.
1: Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we have we have a bunch of feedback uh, already uh to get to on the show, but I I you know, we could do um we could do we could just make the show all all about feedback, which and this this occurred to me because we've been doing my wife and I've been doing a lot of traveling. And when we travel in the car together um, although uh, it sounds like uh, maybe my favorite we're gonna have to figure out something to listen to but but
0: for now this well, might not be for Kristen
1: oh it might not well she <laughs> oh, likes, I don't know she, we like we like murder
0: mystery That's stuff true. so but, like, but you guys don't but I so the I've placed my like historical value uh, judgment on on Kristen, but you also don't like it when or she doesn't like it so much when it's confusing – not confusing, but when the good guys are the bad guys. Oh
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She
0: no, she I likes don't know.
1: I very think clear moral uh, you know, you need these need to be to be relatively clear who the good guys and the bad guys are yeah. so um, no,
0: not celebrating the murder, <laughs> is what I
1: mean. Oh no. Well no, no, no. Yeah. But she does like like the she does get sucked into those 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 goofy true crime reenactment things um, on oh, uh, hotel yeah. TV. But no but my point was the point that I was get trying to, to get to was we, we listen Listen to a lot of car talk, and you know it's right there in the similarity to our name. Um, like they, those guys talk about cars, and we talk about food safety. And they, they, do an entire show, Ben. I don't know if you ever heard the show. They do an entire did an entire show where they would just talk to people um, on the radio about their car problems, and, right. and and that's and that's a. I mean, I love I love that aspect of our show. I mean, certainly we have stuff to talk about uh, even without uh, without listener feedback. But yeah, so uh, so yeah, totally. And and by the way. Um, since we're talking about podcasts, I have to talk about a podcast that I want – that I've started listening to or I've listened to an episode and partly through another episode. And it's, because, and it, and it's one that I'm uh, listening to because of um, uh, By Friday, which and they've referenced this. And that is a show uh, called The Chapo Trap House. Are you familiar with this show?
0: No. no so I've just heard them. Uh, reference it as well. I'm gonna, right. I'm gonna check. It. Yeah, the Chapo Chapo. There it is.
1: Yeah, or as they call it, Chapo. Chapo, and, and the reason yeah. why. I decided to listen. Was that in the last? I think the last Do By Friday episode they referenced an episode of Chap- Chapo where um, the guys on Chapo, and it's a comedy podcast, but it's sort of about politics. Maybe um, who knows? Whatever. It's not really clear what it's about. Um, and they and in this show uh, they they made fun of a book uh, by a guy named Dan Pfeiffer. Dan <laughs> I, don't if, Pfeiffer I don't know if you've yeah, heard yeah. of Dan Pfeiffer, uh, but Dan Pfeiffer. <laughs> is a uh, it's a lot of fun to say that uh, Dan Pfeiffer is a is a, a character a, a, a human a person an actual real person on a podcast <laughs> another podcast uh, that you got me listening to which is uh, which is Pond save America and the guys on Chapo really do not like the uh, the PSA guys and they think that they're they're pretentious and uh, you know not good communicators and and everything else so so I'm not, and I'm very conflicted because I listened to the episode I found them funny uh, but I was also a little uh, a little upset that they were making Fun of uh, Dan Pfeiffer and, and here I am uh, Making fun of him too By um, saying his name In a funny way
0: <laughs> So anyway I'm, I'm checking out Chapo Yeah uh- so
1: and I did. Um, uh, so Max was coming back um, from his uh, cards retreat, and he tweeted, um, "You know, I'm on a plane for three hours. Ask me anything." And I said, "So I've listened to one episode. What other ones do you recommend?" And Merlin chimed in with an episode. So I've got a and the and the one the, the one that I've just started listening to is a is a very very funny opens with a very very funny bit uh, where there the, somebody is pretending to be Elon Musk, and it's it's quite it's quite good and quite funny. But I'm not I'm not sure it's for me. And the other the other problem. He, well, yeah, so a couple. Things here. Um, there was a, a a very funny thing that I that I tweeted. Um, uh, rule, which I which I'll I'll read to you, and then and then I, I want to finish my point here. Um, uh, rules for friendship: be number one, be kind. Number two, be supportive. Number three, understand that they will never watch the Netflix shows that you're recommending to them. Um, and I feel like that that is also true of this podcast. Um, like I, I've come to terms with that that, and hopefully you've come to terms with the fact that I am never like I, it's very unlikely that I'm ever going to listen to my favorite murder. Well, link to it right. in the show notes. Listeners might listen. I, it's totally fine with me if you never listen to Chapo. But the other thing that I have that I have to share with you is my, um, my top level podcast playlist is out of control. Like I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Oh, I mean, there's a dozen or more podcasts here that, and we talked about this before with respect to Omnibus. I, I'm like, there's just, I'm, I am, oh, and then, and then speaking of Dan Pfeiffer, um, there's a new show. By by John uh, Favreau, uh, called the Wilderness that I've started listen that I've put on my list of things to listen to. So, uh, fortunately, that's just a a short uh, uh, thing that's not going to be. Uh, it's going to go, it's going to go away after eight episodes. But anyway, so there's, I, there's too much to listen to. And then I go, I travel, Ben, I go to IAFP and things like that. And I get all out of my normal routine and I'm not walking the dog and I'm not commuting and I'm, I'm, I'm getting behind and I, and, and it's not really stressing me out because it's like, well, whatever, it's a podcast, right? But it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in podcast. My, my email inbox is relatively under control. My podcast inbox is totally out of control.
0: (laughs) Um, I think what you're talking about is the podcast version of Sundoku, not not Sudoku, not not the. But so this is (laughs) one of the things that I am doing right now that I think I might have shared with you is playing uh this uh this online trivia game called uh h q where uh, it you it's like at it's live and it's at three o'clock every day eastern time and at nine o'clock every day eastern time and my kids are really into it They're so this is like the thing that we do right before we go to bed and one of the questions that they had last week was that uh it, it was a uh, um the 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 clue was something like this is the Japanese word for um, buying books and letting them pile up unread. Send oh yes, yeah. I have is, this. I have this thing. Yes, I yeah. have this disease. Yes, and this is the same thing with podcasts, right? Like yes, there are things. So it, yeah, I, I also do the the same thing, and I'm sure that's yeah, you know, like like the rest of the internet uh, talking about things uh, like this. We don't have to go very far to find that this is a very common uh, situation. But yeah, um, so anyway, we're uh, it's uh, Sundoku podcasting. <laughs> so there you go.
1: Uh, so, so what, so what, this is, this is, this is an actual, I'm not finding this on the
0: internet. Son, no, I'm, I'm not, uh, I, I'm, it's not phonetic. I'm oh. going to uh, text you, uh, it's oh. T S U N cause oh. you would never get that. Cause I wouldn't either. Oh, here we go. Uh, now, now I got it. It's yeah. Sandoku
1: definition. Cool.
0: Yeah. It's acquiring reading materials, but letting them pile up in the yes. home without, without reading, reading them. them. Yes. And it uh, it originated in the Maihi era as Japanese slang. Oh, you're you're a veritable encyclopedia. Well, I'm like a, it's like a Wikipedia. I'm like a, <laughs> what's, I'm a, not two, I'm not familiar with their work. What, what's it, that? You know, two white guys uh, reading Wikipedia. That's <laughs> uh, this should be our new the name of our podcast. Name of every, almost every podcast. All right. So yeah, so uh, my favorite murder. What it did on the weekend? Those are all the notes that I had. So I guess <laughs> okay, that's the show. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh hey, let so, talk about so, things. So okay. uh, what, sorry
1: whatever. Le, uh, well, let's right. you want to do listener feedback or you want to talk yes. about other stuff? Listener yeah, feedback. Yeah, let's do listener All right. Feedback. So we'll, well oh, oh oh another thing that I want to talk about while we're talking about stuff that's not food safety is I just I have a, this wonderful uh application called Hazel. Are you familiar with Hazel?
0: Uh no. I wait, wait. <clears throat> yes. This is Tell me what it is, because uh, so did we talk about Hazel last week? This tell me what it is. So, so I don't know if we did or not.
1: Um, so, so Hazel is a Mac application, and what Hazel does is she watches your folders on your computer, and she does stuff to files in your folders. And it occurred to me, I'm I'm forever putting stuff into. The folder for this for the next episode um, that's feedback, and I'm forgetting to tag it um, with the red color, uh, which is which is the system that we've developed for highlighting listener feedback so we don't miss it. And it occurred to me I actually have software that can do this for me automatically. So Hazel is a, this rule based software that watches a particular folder or folders and does stuff based on the attributes of the the files, either their names or their dates. So for example, I have a Hazel rule that watches my desktop and anything that's on my desktop that's a, more than a month old, it just moves it to the trash. Because I use the desktop as just a temporary storage place, but I don't want it to get crapped up, but I don't want stuff to get deleted right away either, um, because I like to, you know, I like to just sort of keep it around in case I need huh. it, and then it just sort of rolls off. But and then it occurred to me, I could make a hazel rule for the podcast folder, where it would just automatically, uh, for the next episode, would tag everything that had feedback or, 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 or something in the name. And so um, I've done that. So I'm, I'm highly confident that everything that's tagged in a red color um, is actually all of the feedback that we have to, to listen to.
0: So anyway, that's awesome. Yeah, that's, so you're so you're not even right. Look, Hazel's tagging him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, so maybe I, maybe you and I. This is the the beauty of uh, podcasts. You and I didn't talk about Hazel. I listened. someone else oh. on the podcast talked about Hazel. Hazel, yeah, and that's where I I knew it. Like it was one of those, um, Hey, Hey, Dan, do you want to tell me about a product that you really like to use? <laughs> they yeah. should, they should sponsor the show. They should, they should. I thought you, were, I thought that's what you were doing. I thought you were going to say, Hey man, I'm, let me tell you about Hazel. This is our, our first sponsor on Food podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, anyway, um, and if you're,
1: cool. if you're, and if you're using windows, shame on you, uh, it's a Mac app. So, uh, but yeah, if you, if you, if you use a Mac, um, and this sounds vaguely interesting to you, uh, check it out. It's a really, it's a nice piece of software. I've been using it for years. I'm, not using it nearly <clears throat> to the level of nerdery that I could be using it. But if, if that sounds like it might be interesting to you, it's worth checking out. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really nice, just really nice, really cool app. So anyway,
0: um, they should sponsor. Oh, wait, wait, yes. before you move on, yes. I have another, I have a question. So sure. I am, um, one, one of the things that I'm really like investing my time in right now is making sure that I'm using, I Uh, uh, Like all the OmniFocus stuff, trying to look for little spots of time when I can work on things. And I've been using my iPad Mm. more and more as a computer replacement, not to be too cliched about Mm. it. But I'm doing a lot more writing on it. Really, the um, Drafts app that uh, Dubai Friday had as a challenge a a couple of months ago, I started using that almost religiously to write stuff. Um, and m- the multitasking aspect of things has become really useful for me. Like I, I really, I never, I thought it was a like, like many things. I thought it was stupid when it came out with iOS, whatever, 9.1 or 11 or whatever it was. And then all of a sudden I started having my loving, having my email open and a Twitter feed open at the same time, or being able to move back and forth between two apps. So I am like almost every almost all the email that I did on Friday that I was telling you about I was, I was catching up for my review was done on my iPad and in with a with a like little external um keyboard. But I'm gonna jump in. You have an iPad Pro, right? Like you have a <laughs> ten and a half Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I have have an iPad Pro, um, and I use it for only a couple of different things. So first of all, I I do use drafts, but almost exclusively um, on my phone. Uh, On my my iPad, I do a couple of things with religiously. All of my reviews of manuscripts, I always do on my iPad, and I do it with some software that we've talked about before here called iAnnotate that lets me basically mark up and comment and then generate... Basically, read the manuscript once through, being you know with brutal you know brutal comments, and then and then and then basically generate a, a script from that. Basically, generate a a text file from that that I basically would do minimal editing on and then submit that as my review. Um, and the other thing that I do is I use an application, uh, whose name I can never remember. It's, it's a beautiful, it's got a beautiful icon with a pencil on it. um, and that I learned about from John Gruber and basically it's another annotating app. And so what, and I use, what I use that for is, um, if I need to comment on an, um, a manuscript, But I I don't want to get too fiddly with the edits. I basically turn it into a PDF and then I mark it up. Or I use this for critiquing um, my students' uh, PowerPoints. And so, uh, and it basically lets me use my Apple Pencil. I can circle. Stuff uh, and and then make uh, either handwritten notes, writing with the pencil, um, or or other, and so it's just basically a very efficient way to, much much as you would in the old olden days, use a red pen on something. And so I use that uh, that app uh, for doing that. And my, my iPad is actually uh, not not in front of me right now, so I can't remember the name of that app. But it's a, we'll we'll find we'll find it and put it into show notes. But it, but and and those those are really the two things that I use my iPad for. I don't do. Um, I haven't mastered this task of multiple windows on the iPad. Um, as, as strange as that sounds, I just, I haven't, I haven't figured that out. Um, I mean, I, I can, anytime I want to try to use it, I have to go look up how to do it and then I, and then I use it for whatever I need it for. And then I immediately forget how to do that.
0: That was the, that, that was the revolutionary part of the last three weeks or a month or so is just like reading how to best use the that multitasking and so it's cha- it's changed stuff for me like i'm getting close to the point where if i am traveling somewhere for a day i might not even need to take my my computer anymore and i can load my slides on if i'm going to go give a talk to my ipad run it off of that do my email do everything off of it and so i'm i'm getting there and uh, but I, I think i'm going to invest in a and what are the 10 and a half inch iPad pros with the fancy little, uh, keyboard thing? Cause I don't have one of those. I just have this like extra keyboard that is now I'm carrying two little iPad minis, which is dumb.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have that, that smart, smart cover with the keyboard. I really like it. Um, I have a nice case, the Apple made branded Apple, Apple company case that has a little place for the, the pencil. Um, and I really like it. Um, yeah. And so, and I will, I will take it with me places where I know that all I have to do is maybe clean up. And the other thing I'll actually, the other thing that I used to do all the time on my iPad was to do, that's where I would do my OmniFocus. Right. Um, now I mostly do OmniFocus on my, on my phone, uh, and sometimes on my iPad, but yeah, I, I am, I'm more comfortable I'm taking the iPad with me just for doing work. The problem is a a lot of, and actually, it's getting easier now. Like to to put stuff into now that basically I live in Dropbox, put putting everything into Dropbox. Because often if I have a task to do, I'll put a file into Dropbox, um, uh, into a folder in Dropbox, and then make a task in OmniFocus so that I know, like I know where I know where everything is. Everything has a place, and everything goes in that place. yeah, but I but I'm but I'm probably not fully utilizing the iPad to the extent uh, that I that I could for sure.
0: Well, well, good. We'll do it. OK, um, Okay, Don, I have a question for you. Sure. Um, this is a this is a yes or no question. Okay. Um, so it's uh, and it's it's one of those like our favorite types of questions. Um, should you be worried about antibiotic-resistant superbugs reportedly found in almost 80% of supermarket meat? No. <laughs> okay. Next question. No. So this, <laughs> the, for, this, this is the part of the uh, show where we get into listener feedback. Um, and uh, we, we had a message last week from uh, listener Frida Bonilla. And uh, Frida says, "Hi, I just stumbled uh, upon your website and figured you might be interested in checking out our article. Uh, should you be worried about antibiotic-resistant superbugs reportedly found in almost eighty percent of supermarket meat? Here's a link. Love to hear what your thoughts are on the article. Uh, if you enjoy it, we'd appreciate it if you can share it on Twitter."
1: <laughs> yeah. In other words, uh, please promote my website. Um, is yeah. what is what that is? And we, I guess, we'll link to it. Um, uh, we will. But. But yeah, so uh, and and my response back to you was uh, classic uh, Betteridge. Uh, so this is uh, this is a reference to Betteridge's law, um, and what Betteridge's it's not Godwin's law; it's a different law. Um, uh, but what Betteridge's law says is that if a headline of a newspaper article asks a question, the answer is
0: always no. <laughs> exactly. And- and your, your message of classic betterage made me think of one of my favorite Saturday Night Live skits, uh, which includes uh, uh, Kristen Wiig and Justin Timberlake, uh, where it's uh, about a woman who visits Target and uh, her name is Peg. And the running joke is classic Peg. So we'll link to that because it was when you said classic betterage, all I thought was classic Peg. Um, but. So anyway, let's talk about this article because this is um, this goes into something else that I saw this weekend uh, from CNN, which has another really similar headline. Well, not similar headline, but we'll we'll get to that in a second. But what what I what I, I guess I'm increasingly seeing is stuff like this, where it, it, and not just me. I think you and I are talking about this often, and other people are. Uh, I'm, I'm getting questions like this from our um, field faculty and, uh, extension, um, agents in, in North Carolina, where like a non breaking news kind of place will do some sort of an article on food safety that pulls together nine or 10 different sources, but with the lead being something that's not really based in a whole lot of good science. And this one's a good example. It's, it's right from, um, uh, it, it says in the in the start of this uh, headlo- or the start of the article, based on data from the FDA, the Environmental Working Group has determined almost eighty percent of all U.S. supermarket meat is contaminated with some form of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. I would, and so it goes on. The organization came to this conclusion after ex- examining over forty-seven thousand federal government lab tests. Blah 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 blah. Um, I, I would suggest that that from a scientific standpoint Don this is even that's n- not even really correct I would wouldn't you guess that all a hundred percent of supermarket meat would be quote contaminated with some form of antibiotic resistant bacteria not a pathogen here right like wouldn't you think that there's there's some like there are lots of bacteria out there that are are would be would carry resistance genes right like they could even get a much higher and scarier with their terms
1: right and and and, 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 and let's be clear like we we are we we realize that antibiotic resistance uh in in microorganisms is a problem uh it is a real problem i think the, the um there is evidence that uh, the food supply contributes to that problem. The extent to which the food supply versus hospitals versus unnecessary um, antibiotics being prescribed to people that are not sick with bacterial diseases contribute I think that that is still an ongoing research question um, but yeah, I mean, there have been studies that have shown that that we've have people have gone to ancient Samples um, before we had antibiotics and they found antibiotic resistant bacteria. How can that be you ask because uh, bacteria have genes that enable them to survive stress, and that includes uh, the stress of antibiotics, which um, you know uh, existed in you know those stresses and in fact even those i mean antibiotics come from other microorganisms so they, they these things existed before we as humans used them to cure disease again, not to say that. Antibiotic resistance um, is not a problem, um, but it, it the, the and and the extent to which raw meat contributes to that problem is definitely um, you know it's 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 not clear that it does because honestly. I don't want um, pathogens in the meat, uh, but I realize that cooking the meat is going to control the problem. And if those pathogens survive the cooking process, they're going to cause disease. If they survive the cooking process and they're antibiotic resistant, well, that's also going to be a problem. But it's not—it's not one of the great food safety problems that I spend a whole lot of time thinking about. Just because I don't, in the grand scheme of things, as to how we're going to manage the problem of the development of antibiotic resistance, I don't—I don't think worrying about that in the in the Meat supply is is really helpful in terms of solving the problem. Ben, are you on mute? Did I lose you?
0: No, I'm on mute. I'm on mute, and then I started talking, and then I heard you, and I couldn't find my button. <laughs> uh, found, found the button. Couldn't find my button. Couldn't find my button. Uh, no, I mean, I, I think you, you, I think you exactly nailed it. It's not. It's not to say that this isn't something that that overall in the one health approach that we we should not be concerned about. We we absolutely should be. Um, it, is, it, it becomes an, an issue. And, and this is like one of those things that I think we've seen brought up on Twitter a bunch and I, I think very nicely around the whole idea of blockchain and traceability, which is we're f- focusing on antibiotic resistance and the pathogen In it, it means that the pathogen got to somebody and now we're worried about treatment, right? Like we're, we're, not, we're not focused on... Um, reducing exposure, and maybe that's even oversimplifying it too much uh, as well. But but th- this one, I what I really liked about this piece of, like, this piece of, quote, feedback by someone who uh, just stumbled upon our website um, is that almost everything, like this was published in July 16, almost all of the links that are um, linked here that become the driver for this article are, are really old. Like right. some 2017 stuff. Um, there was, uh, in fact, a lot of what what's here came out of a, a Forbes article from 2013 from Beth Hoffman, which I remember like seeing a little bit of uh, coverage about as well. And it was just from a, a Forbes blog, um, uh, just going through NARMS, and and it's. With with all we're, as we get on through to the rest of our conversation today, there are a lot of real like food safety issues that are going on that are really current, right? Like cyclospora and salmonella and oh, way past. Yeah, right. So so to like re to recycle something like this that really doesn't have a I don't know it, the focus is like oh hey let's think about this is it it, it, it to me shouldn't shouldn't take up the space. Of, uh, of the conversation.
1: Yeah. Let's, let's think about this thing that we knew five years ago that we're just recycling those, those same links instead of talking about like, I, I'm much more interested in salmonella in whey powder or cyclospora in uh, vegetables or salads, right? Because that's right. what's going on right now. And there's, you know, and again, maybe we don't have the full information, but we sure don't need to talk about a story about antibiotic resistant superbugs from five years ago.
0: Right. Thank you. That's that's it. That's all I. You're so much more articulate than I. Am.
1: Well, no, it's, I listen and then and then you know and then I and rephrase what like, you said and yeah, then yeah. and you do the same for me. This is why it's really good to have a podcast with two
0: people. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So I'm gonna text you something um, right now. I think I put this into the show notes this morning. Um, actually, maybe it's in there. But this is an article from CNN that that uh, came out on Friday, and the headline is. Yeah, It's um, here it is, it's in the show notes. Um, foodborne illness may be on the rise, and here's why. Um, great, great headline. The article doesn't really say that, uh, <laughs> like, yeah, right. Like, and and in fact, so, so what it says is, um, not, not that at all. Uh, it, it, it does a really good job interviewing, I mean, the, um, Journalists do a really good job interviewing uh, Kathy Donnelly and Mike Taylor uh, about food safety stuff, and there were a few things, So then, this is where the headline comes from. Preliminary data from the most recent CDC FoodNet report, which documents trends in foodborne illness outbreaks, quote, I want to make sure we highlight that, hints that some forms may be on the rise. The overall number of Campylobacter, Listeria, Salmonella, Shigella, Vibrio, and Yersinia diagnosed increased 96 percent um, in 2017 to compared to the 2014 to 15 uh, uh, data, and that's I can't remember when FoodNet came out, but that was a few months ago um, from 2017. So certain things we're not seeing a, a, a downward trend, but this is this is where I want to get your take on math.
1: Oh yeah, sure.
0: So in a purely like descriptive statistics, if I list out here are the number of outbreaks and the number of illnesses that are confirmed from year to year and I see some form of difference up and down from year to year, does that like does that really matter or or do we need to be looking at, you know, some significance testing for for this? Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah so go go be a, be a math guy please
1: yeah so uh, much more so than any year to year difference i would look at the long term trends or or even the you know the shorter term trends and and this you know we've had we've had discussions about this uh there's there's a a pretty there's a couple of uh, really good articles in the peer reviewed literature about whether something is going, whether the trend is going up or going down and, you know, and, 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 you have to factor in, um, the, you know, tools that we use, uh, the changes in the tools. I mean, I think we're a lot of the, what we're seeing now is being driven by, uh, whole genome sequencing or next generation sequencing. It's not really whole genome a bit of a misnomer, right? So, um, but yeah, I mean, and I, I mean, we should be concerned about this, but, we should, and as long as people are getting sick, we should be concerned about right. it. I'm, and I, I'm less interested in whether it's getting better or whether it's getting worse. Um, I'm more interested in why does it happen. Like why? Again, let's come back to wh- why did this way outbreak happen? Why did the cyclospora outbreak happen? Why did the Yuma um, uh, lettuce outbreak happen? Right. I'm much more interested in why it happened, and then let's put systems in place to stop it from happening. I'm less interested in what's the what's the long term trend on this it's just not I just don't really care because it's 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 complicated, right? It's it's, and it's complicated to know whether it's really truly going up or really truly going down. I'm I'm much more interested in whether the population in in experiments to discover whether the population of bacteria in a food under certain conditions is going up and down because that has important food safety policy consequences. And I guess I guess if if foodborne disease is getting worse then we should put more resources into solving the problem. If it's getting better, I don't think that, that necessarily means that we yeah that we need less resources and so right. it's uh, and again there are people that are obviously very interested in, in this and they should be if they're you know if they're if they're policy people I it just doesn't really interest me. I mean it interests me a little bit as an academic exercise in ter- in trend analysis. Um, and yeah, I would, I would be very interested to get the take of somebody like, uh, like a Mike bats who, who maybe this is more in his world, uh, than, than our world. But I, I just, I'd have a hard time getting excited about it.
0: Right. Well, let's, let's put out the bat signal uh, <laughs> right, right there. Um, and, and the thing that I, that, so I just sent you a text, uh, a link to, yep. uh, the food net and this is, it yeah. Uh, The figure one relative rate of confirmed salmonella uh, infections with the top six salmonella serotypes in 2017 compared with the 2006 to eight average uh, incidence by year. And, and one of the things, so, so it, it starts at one because, um, 2006, 2008 compared to 2006, 2008 is going to be relative rate would be one. It's the same. Right. And, and you have differences. So, so Javiana, For instance, uh, appears year to year to have a um, a two log scale relative rate higher over year to year, but that the thing that that when we one of the things about FoodNet when we look at um, about some of this stuff is it makes me a little bit nervous is we're looking at spot like. An outbreak, a really large outbreak that might have been linked to one or two factors or one or two bad actors changes what these rates look like a lot and and it doesn't tell the story because it's one that's one incident
1: right? right and that and that may be what's going on for example with the the green line for enteritis in 2010 right like there was right. a a big outbreak but but for sure again looking at this this graph which we'll we'll link to and thanks for finding the article there's a slow downward trend for typhimurium but yeah for sure javiana is above everything else in in what looks like a significant way and again i'm much more interested in why is that, right? Like what foods is Javiana linked to? What foods is type Miriam linked to? And what's happening in those, in the, in the production of the, the food supply for, for those particular foods that are linked to those. And, and again, and this whole issue of, uh, of attribution is another one that's again, from a mathematical point of view is, is fascinating. Um, and it's actually much more interesting to me that than, than tr- this trend stuff. Cause it's just like, well, okay, whatever. Yeah. So that's information that's useful. Um, am, is, is it going to change the way that I study food safety or what I do? Probably not. But again, I want more of the why behind it. Like why? Again, why is Javiana so high? Why is uh, Infantis um, uh, so high? You know, relative to uh, Heidelberg, and why is the trend for Heidelberg going down? We we don't know. Right, right.
0: right. And and I'm gonna I'm gonna call it. To, I mean, exactly. It. And if I this is, I guess my. My my criticism of the of, of the article is that the the headline is foodborne illness may be on the rise. Here's why, and really the data doesn't doesn't answer the here's why. And I'm gonna read something that that if you if this was um, uh, completed, this article was written 15 years ago or 20 years ago. This is this quote still stands up, and this is from. Um, Kathy Donnelly at, at Virginia or um, at University of Vermont. Quote, foods travel longer distances to get from farms to consumers and pathogens can be introduced along the way, Donnelly said. There's a wider geographic distribution of centrally produced foods, so when something goes wrong during production, it impacts. Uh, the impacts are widespread.
1: D- that and- hasn't happened from 2006 to 2018.
0: Exactly. Right. right? Like this, that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, that may explain and, U.S. versus Europe. I mean, maybe, you know, and Kathy yeah. Donnelly's a smart person, and maybe the quote was taken out of context, but but that's that's not right. that's not that makes no sense. Yeah, it's not connected.
0: It's not the answer, right? Right. And, for and, sure. and probably, you know, you know, I've done enough media that what happens is someone says, "Tell us why there's so much foodborne illness." Right. And, and this is one of the like. This is a really good all-encompassing standard answer but it's not it doesn't answer the question of why things might be on the rise and and it's a a uh it's it's rel it's relative right like like this it, it, it was this it's the same answer 20 years ago <laughs> um and so all of this stuff like I think when when I read these, the part that gets makes me most frustrated is, yeah, that's a great great headline. I'm like, oh, food This came up in my in my CNN alerts on, on Saturday morning when I got up, and I was like, here we go, a nice foodborne illness article, and it's not. None. Nothing. Nothing's here is new, and nothing really answers the question of if there were more illnesses, why? Why would be that? Why would that be the case? I mean, there are comments in here about better surveillance. We uh, talk about intensive um, uh, agriculture. Um, you know what? Consumers. Blah blah blah. I mean, all the same stuff. This is just. It, it, I don't know. It's nothing. None of this is new. It's frustrating. <laughs>
1: Yes, yes, I, I, I would, I would definitely agree. So, and while we're, I just want to b- do a brief segue, actually do a kind of a, 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 to, a head fake and then, and then a, go the other direction. That's a hockey thing, I think, right? A d- it's fake? a is that, is it Yeah, de- yeah, yeah, a A toe deke.
0: drag, toe yeah. drag deep.
1: Yeah, yeah. Go. I'm going to toe drag your deke here. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I, thinking about headlines and, and how crappy headlines are, this reminds me of something that um, our friend from the internet um, in the fade uh, posted on her Facebook. Facebook, which just got her really angry, and I understand why. Uh, It's 50 Summer Foods You Should Never Eat. Um, The subhead is, for the sake of your waistline and your health, try to steer clear of these warm weather treats. And it's a it's a ter it's basically a terrible headline, and she's just upset because she's old, like us, or like me, anyway. Um, and uh, she doesn't want people to tell her what to eat. And if she wants to have ice cream every once in a while, she wants to do that. And so, if you actually go and read the article, um, the article is like you know again, this is a classic problem: is the people that write the headlines uh, don't write the articles. And so, um, I just want to mention it because just be- because you know, again, we shouldn't always blame the authors of the articles for the headlines. And this is a this is an article from prevention and it's just clickbait right it's clickbait because of the headline and then it's got fit you have to load 50 different pages to read about the 50 different foods and so we'll link to it but please don't don't click on the link um but then the next thing i want to talk to you about is um an article that. Speaking of being interviewed and being misquoted, um, this is an article which we'll link to in the show notes. I don't. I don't think I want to send you the article yet. Okay, so I just want your reaction. So, and I, I did okay, some right media in. around this. Um, okay. And the guy, uh, the guy was he basically talked to a bunch of different people, but finally he found me, and he's like, "Oh, finally, um, I found an expert from New Jersey." And so he used a lot of my quotes because I was from New Jersey, and it's a it's a New Jersey um, uh, piece. But um, basically. Uh, a woman uh, is seeking damages after allegedly finding a dead rodent in an Arizona beverage can that she bought from a local CVS according to a lawsuit filed in Superior Court so a reporter calls you up asks you to comment on this what do you say? (laughs)
0: Uh, uh, like my I would kind of get out of it and say oh I don't really know a lot about (laughs) pest control (laughs) Uh,
1: (laughs) clearly that did not my lack of knowledge did not stop (laughs) me from commenting on this article
0: uh, but, on but this then, on this story, yeah, but then with like I'm a,
1: I'm, where, a, I'm a news, uh, a, yeah. news uh, a whore or something. So. Me
0: too, me too. But, so then probably with like further prompting, I w- would talk about like how that's pretty um, that would be pretty uh, surprising just based on my uh, experience in um, you know seeing some of the beverage processing uh, facilities are that are out there and just the the nature of how things get in, into cans, um, but. Um, so I would kind of go towards, so it sounds like a really unique, uh, event and, um, but from a, from a food safety standpoint, um, it, it would, I don't, I mean, I, I don't think that there would be, it would be super, super gross, but I, uh, but I think it would not be, um, uh, you know, super risky. I don't think someone's going to get Yersinia from it. Right, right. So let me me read to you what
1: I apparently said. Um, uh, It's not uncommon for people to find foreign objects in their food or drink, insects, plastic, pieces of metal from the factory machinery, Schaffner said. But, quote, to have an entire intact rodent, (laughs) comma, it stretches the bounds of credulity. (laughs) Oh, that's good. Um, Credulity? Yeah, I was was on my game. Um, uh, Modern uh, manufacturing plants pack and seal items in ways that make it, quote, virtually impossible, close quote, for larger objects like a rodent to infiltrate, Schaffner said. Um, let's see, what else did I say? Uh, Schaffner said he's heard of contamination cases that were traced to a disgruntled employee at the plant. Uh, rodents, he said, are known to carry a host of bacteria that can cause food poisoning, like salmonella. Uh, quote, if this is a real allegation, comma, then it's a public health concern. Uh, close quote, Schaffner said. So I guess, I mean, I don't know. I just, I kind of, I kind of was, I was on my high horse. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I feel, I mean, I you know, let's hope that they don't actually... You know, get me involved in this lawsuit because I really don't want to be involved. And and certainly, if the woman uh, really did get sick, this is this is you know this is this is, or if she really did encounter this, it's really bad. But um, but apparently, this was um, this is the lawsuit is based on something that she purchased in August of 2016. So um, we'll 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 see what we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll we'll keep our eyes on this as it develops. Ben, are you on mute? I don't hear you.
0: Yes. I'm on mute again. I don't, I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm overly muting today. Um, so, uh, 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 again, um, I don't even know what I was going to say. doesn't matter. I'm not on mute anymore. Let's move on. <laughs>
1: okay. Hey, uh, so, uh, we, I have, uh, some important feedback, um, from a longtime uh, listener deep cookie. Um, this was, this came in, I think before the IAFP show. Um, Uh, So he says, uh, hi, guys, uh, Deep Cookie here. When are we getting a pet food safety talk special? Seems like a fur sure winner. I think he just did this as an excuse to make terrible pet puns. Um, It's
0: good. I appreciated that.
1: (laughs) So I've been hearing reading suggestions that raw bones, uh, raw meals are safer than cooked bones meat for dogs, cats to eat. I cannot imagine giving your dog a raw beef bone to chew on is a safe idea. I've even seen some stands at farmer's markets that sell pre-made raw meat pet meals. I'm biased, but I only see cross-contamination uh, Cross contamination nightmare. I think he's right. Um, so I'm wondering if people got the wrong message from the FDA about bone treats and assumed that cooking of the bones was the problem. Rover.com suggests that in general, raw bones are a lot safer than cooked bones and that, quote, it's best to know where bones come from, so you should purchase raw bones from a butcher with locally sourced meat. Um Anyway, FDA should be warning people about the potential risk of cross-contamination from raw bones meat. Did they assume that nobody would give a dog a raw bone to chew on? No way. They're tr- actually trying to warn people. Uh, Perfectly Rawsome is a website that offers raw meat diet plans for cats and dogs. Their fact page is a treat, uh, but at least they recommend cleaning up after serving the raw meal to a pet. To- who do I trust in this situation, a government agency or the Internet? <laughs>
0: I mean, <laughs> you, I mean, what do you always, think? Always the internet, right? right? Right. Yeah. So this is um I hadn't like seen this uh before. And I I don't know, like we we buy um uh we we don't buy a whole lot of uh bones for for our dogs or anything like this. So yeah. I didn't I had to do a little bit of um like digging on this uh from from Deep Cookie and I, to me, I I would think, and and again, it, I would think that the that the raw bones are are riskier, right? Like that they they haven't been um, uh, processed at all. I don't know about the heat treatment and whether the like cooking off the bones if that's done in a in a wet environment or if they're like roasted and and maybe there would be salmonella issues with both of them. Cause it's a dry, I mean, it's a dry product uh, at, at the end, but, but in, in general, that's what I, you know, I, I would um, disagree with the rover.com suggestion, right? Like, uh, but maybe, maybe i 'm missing something
1: no I, I think you 're entirely right, and we know we know that pet foods have been linked to human illness right um they 're documented outbreaks, and so and I, I try to be real i mean we give our uh, our dogs, uh, you know, a couple of different uh, kinds of things. Um, and you know, we have give them canned food, we give them dry food. Um, uh, my wife buys them treats and gives them treats, which are which are you know again sort of dried, often dried beef jerky treats or or, or bone products that have been hardened. Um, and yeah, and you shouldn't give you shouldn't give your your pet um, raw bones. I mean, maybe they evolved to eat that, but um, you know there are there is a risk of giving your pet uh, raw. Uh, at least raw chicken bones, because they can actually choke on them, and so we try to avoid uh, giving them either raw chicken bones or cooked chicken bones, um, uh, even though occasionally uh, Gibbs is very good about finding uh, them in the on the side of the road where somebody has left them in their trash. And then some animal came by during the night and pulled it out of the bag and the trash guys took the trash bag, but not the bones. And so he's super good at finding those and he remembers where they are and he'll go back the next day looking for them. And so I do have to pay attention. And occasionally, um, he doesn't know oh, oh, speaking of Gibbs, there he is, um, oh. uh, 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 barking in the background. But yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a problem. Um, obviously it's not deadly because he occasionally does get his paws and his mouth on them and eat them before I can get them out of his mouth but as a general practice it's a bad idea um yeah it's just it's just a bad idea all around I mean if you're giving I understand why people would want to give their pets raw meat because they think it's healthier or or you know more natural but there's there's definitely risks involved and I personally we don't do it in fact I even we put out um suet and seed for the birds. Um, but I, every time I'm handling that, you know, I'm thinking about after I handle it, I've got hot hands, um, hot because, hands, because hot yo, hands. Uh, the seed that we feed to birds is the, it's the lowest quality seed. And so it's very likely to be contaminated with salmonella. And, uh, and I, and I, I really, you know, practice, uh, appropriate, uh, hot hands techniques, uh, when, when, after I've, uh, handled, uh, handled the seed. So yeah, that's my two cents.
0: Well, when, let me, let me go back in, in, and think about this a little more. And I wonder if, you know, as I look at the rover.com suggestions that when it talks about safer, they're, they don't have our microbiological lens on right. when a lot of the stuff that they're talking about is splintering and cracking. And maybe the cooked bones are because of that heat process are more likely to splinter and crack and lead to small shards of, of bone. Right. Um, although then, you know, in as, as, uh, um, as Deep Cookie uh, points out, you, you know, I don't understand the purchase raw bones from a butcher with locally sourced meat where that comes in. Like mm. lo-
1: locally every, sourced every, meat. Everybody knows locally sourced meat doesn't have bacteria, Ben. Everybody oh, knows it's good.
0: Well, it's local. It's local bacteria. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, yeah they're not a unfa- the safer
1: kind. They're not they're not like these deadly immigrant bacteria coming across our borders.
0: <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, that's that's why the wall is going up, Don. Mm-hmm. It's for the immigrant bacteria. Uh, uh, we use the, we use a Nylabone Dura Chew, Yep, which is what's, uh, what's listed here. And, uh, Stanley has one that is over a year and a half old and he still he tries to chew it every day and it works. Yep. So, yep. um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I think we, we, we hit stuff here that just handling those raw, those bones, whether they're, I mean, more likely the raw than than cooked can, can lead to those hot hands. And, um, and the, I mean, the whole raw raw food diet is, uh, has the potential to expose, uh, dogs or cats to to these human and animal pathogens, which, uh, seems like it might be risky because I don't want, uh, I don't want, a poopy dog, uh, uh, diarrhea that, that is caused by salmonella than I get or Campylobacter it, or whatever.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Cool. Hey, can I ask you a question about leftover barbecue? Oh, can you ever? So this question comes from a friend of the show uh, who we shouldn't identify uh, just because she didn't know that she was going to be put on our show. But uh, she says, I have a food reheating question. Uh, She she writes, "Uh, smoked meats, barbecue leftovers from a restaurant have been in the fridge since last night. Is it necessary to heat it up or can I eat it cold? Um, And so I'll I'll, I'll, let me let me I'm going to give my answer, but I want to hear your answer first.
0: Okay, so, um, and uh, let me let me go back. So, just to be clear, these are barbecue leftovers from a restaurant. They've been in the fridge since last night. Yep. <laughs> um, so I I went to the restaurant, got some stuff, put them in the refrigerator. Yeah, you you you, you had a meal. Yeah. You you ordered because
1: it was cheaper or it yep. was delicious. You ordered tons and tons of barbecue. It's really good, but you couldn't fit it in, and so you brought it home. and You handled it up carefully the whole the whole time. It was, let's say, for the sake of discussion, it was out at the restaurant for you know no more than an hour, and it was less than an yeah. hour. For you to get home so all, all good practices
0: good 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 yeah and and let's just for the sake of not obsecking this individual let's just <laughs> assume that it's beef barbecue um, <laughs> sure which doesn't matter at all so yeah I mean I would I would absolutely eat it cold and I've definitely eaten uh, cold uh, barbecue brisket uh, risk wise I think we run into stuff um, if uh, after a long amount of time in the refrigerator um, and long for for me would be, Um, you know, based on, I just checked my, my first temperature yesterday. did a little, uh, this is my weekend, uh, fun, did a little, what's it set to and what's it actually registering. And so right now it is set for, uh, to 34 degrees and it is, uh, I took some, uh, temperatures of product and they are at 35. Um, and, uh, I I would say I'd get a, a full week, uh, out of whatever's in my refrigerator, uh, from a spoilage and a listeria growth, um, uh, standpoint. Um, But uh, the reheating comes comes into play if if I thought that there might be some uh, post handling post cooking uh, contamination, and I wanted to then go ahead and and take care of the any of the vegetative cells that are there uh, that might have been uh, placed into it, and then I would go ahead and reheat, and I would I would have no problem. Reheating in a microwave with like some stirring and and using a thermometer and making sure that it was um, you know uh, reached above 135 degrees with with that un, uneven heating. But for for me, uh, it was if if it was uh, there there no no increased risk. Just keeping it in my fridge overnight. It was as risky as it was when I ate it in the restaurant. Right. And,
1: and I've, I've, I think I've shared before on the podcast and I'll share now, I often, depending upon the type of meat, um, I don't like that. I'm, I can taste that warmed over flavor, um, especially from things like like pork um, uh, if they're reheated. And so I will often, I pr- often prefer to eat um, uh, leftover meats um, just, just right out of the fridge because I just don't like that warmed over flavor. Um, but now let me ask you this. What do you think? the official government line is on leftovers
0: um, oh I I my guess is it's not exactly what we just said I bet you they said <laughs> 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 I bet you that that it is. Uh, And I want to talk about this in a second, but um, I bet you it says something like reheat uh, leftovers to 165 degrees Fahrenheit and use them within three days. And it doesn't talk about using them cold at all. It says reheat them every time.
1: Yep. When when (laughs) reheating leftovers, be sure they reach 165 as measured with a food thermometer. Reheat sauces, soups, and gravies by bringing them to a rolling boil. Cover leftovers to reheat. This retains moisture and ensures the food will heat all the way through.
0: This isn't bad information. It's just no, overly it's just protective.
1: Overly protective, exactly.
0: Yeah. And so I one of the things that, that I I'm gonna because I, I was part of the this session at IAFP and I, I'm not I'm gonna do my best to not misquote um one one of my like partners and, and colleagues. Um, but we did a, a session at IAFP on consumer behaviors and one of the things that um, you know, I've I've talked about working on this project uh, with RTI and FSIS to look at um, consumer uh, handling and a whole bunch of different things, and one of the things that I thought was really really great um Aaron Lavalee from from FSIS mentioned something about using data that's that's developed from this project or results from the project to reevaluate whether the messages that they're putting out there are realistic and doing so in uh, it, it, looking at it from a compliance standpoint as well as a risk based standpoint and so i think we're we're at a at a, a time where um this t- like it doesn't it doesn't change you know you can't we can't change the uh, the course in a day but that there are agencies out there that put out this information that are willing to learn, listen to uh, you and i be cynical about the messages and saying you know what it's uh, let's not do this in a overly simplified way that's, that's maybe too, that's protective for everybody. Let's talk about if you want to do it this way, here's how you control your risk. If you want to do it this way, here's how you control your risk. Um, and, and that kind of, um, message. And it was really the first time that I had heard someone talk about it in, in that way. Like maybe again, this is going to be me translating it. So I may not get this right, but maybe our messages, Are not where they need to be from a risk standpoint, so we should probably revisit them and make sure that we are getting the right messages out there. Wow, that's that's exciting. It is, and so I um, for those I'm going to put a plug in for IAFP. We talked a little bit about this um, in our last episode, but one of the biggest benefits to um, to being a member and uh, going to the conference, the annual um, meeting, is to be able to listen to the recorded um, sessions. And so I got a message, uh, I think it was on Friday saying that those, those recordings are, are up. So if you're looking to, to find, um, what, you know, this was on, uh, we are uh, dear Ben, we are pleased to announce that many of the IAFP 2018 audio recordings for those prevent- presenters who were provided permission are now available. More recordings will be available soon and then click here to, to get them. So if I think you can purchase, um, if you didn't go to the meeting, you can purchase um, the entire meeting for $150 um, and listen to everything that that was there, which is a really good deal.
1: And what if you're a member but you didn't go to the meeting? I think that there's something there, right? Yeah, What's I it? I don't know. I mean, they should they should. They should certain, certainly, if you want to buy the whole meeting for 150 bucks, they should let you do that. But I think also if you pay $55 for a membership, you should also just get, get, get access to the entire meeting. I and then it's your choice as to which you want to buy.
0: Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that that's the way it is. But um, but we should, you know you know who uh, who talks to us about these things uh, or who listens to the show is uh, David Tharp, friend of the show. Sometimes oh. he listens to it right on the website. <laughs> so maybe he can clarify for us and we can uh, provide that in feedback next time. Yep. Yep, cool. cool. Um, so, yeah. All right. So, so what did you? So what did you say?
1: Um, no, I, yeah. Oh, I said uh, they're okay to eat cold. <laughs> I often eat leftover meat cold to avoid the warmed-over flavor. That's what I said. So,
0: cool. Even if it's uh, Texas barbecue. Uh,
1: yeah, even if it's from Austin, Texas, from eaten by a person from a famous podcast network. off,
0: off, off ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Um. Hey. So I've got I got something for you. All right. Um. Uh, again from from feedback. So this is uh, from a listener uh, John Plummer. Uh, John says, um, one of these is in in your ambit. The other maybe less so. Number one. Wait, I what's who, what's the, I, my first question is what's an ambit? I don't know. I don't know okay. what the, I was hoping that you knew what that meant. Okay. I but, I a type. Google of? it. But, yeah. All right. I'm gonna Google ambit. Google, Google that. I have a 16-ounce bottle of coffee concentrated at my desk um, that I opened two weeks ago and used some, then failed to refrigerate. The label says refrigerate after opening, use within 30 days after opening, and best before September 23rd, 2018. Now, a couple of weeks have passed, I'm, am I likely to sicken myself if I have more of this? And then number two, I have a wide mouth glass water bottle that I use to fetch water from the chilled office sp- spout. To drink at my desk. Um, Occasionally, it will sit empty at my desk over the weekend. What risk do I entertain and how bad by either? A, leaving it open at my desk where it can dry out but airborne particles can get inside. Or B, leaving it closed at my desk where it can remain moist but is not likely to pick up anything um, new save what came from the water from my mouth and hands. Uh, Yeah. So thanks for the show. Uh, Though my friends think I'm weird whenever I recommend it to them. That's I'm John. Uh, Um, Well, yeah, D- we we should assign a name to to John, even though he said that we could share all of his na- names. And I think we go with uh, uh, Deep Beverages.
1: <laughs> I I, th- I figured we could make a play on his last name and call him uh, Deep Plunger.
0: <laughs> deep Plunger, Deep Plunger the plumber. Uh, okay, so 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 what, do you, so what do you got here? So I
1: you know I I worry I I worry Ben I worry that i mean and, and i'm sure and, and john you know john John is uh is is he has good questions but i worry a little bit that people that are a little a little tiny bit too obsessed with germs and contamination find our show and then we make them more anxious and more worried uh, but i don't think that's the case with john so but again good good question so um with respect to the coffee concentrate um my my thought is uh low risk. Um, mostly I think it's going to be a quality loss. Uh, two weeks at room temperature is going to have a much greater quality loss than 30 days in the refrigerator. Um, I uh, my advice was just to toss it, even though it's it's low risk. My advice was to toss it and then just be more careful in the future. Um, I'm I just received a manuscript uh, for peer review on um, a challenge study on Clostridium botulinum in coffee. Uh, I have not completed the review, uh, but but basically the the conclusion of the the authors was that it was uh, essentially no risk, no no growth in in CBOT. So. But again, you know, it's it's a it's a, not no risk. Nothing is no risk. But and so my advice always with these things is you know kind of that classic extension advice when and now throw it out if for no other reason than uh than quality. So and and certainly again you should never never take food safety advice um from a podcast called Food Safety Talk.
0: <laughs> right, right.
1: Always <laughs> consult uh, I don't know somebody that's not us because uh, we don't have insurance. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I guess we're doing but, this as part of our job so we'd be covered by the university. Yeah. So um yeah that's and nice. then uh the water question, I think, is is much more interesting um, because it's there's just so many nuances here. So first of all, uh, water likely does not support pathogen growth, uh, where pathogen growth would mean an increase in risk. Um, and then I'm going to get a little bit graphic here. So uh, depending upon backwash and whether you're eating food when you're drinking water, um, you might get some things um, in that water uh, that were at some point in your mouth. And so those would be nutrients that would support microbial growth uh, in the bottom of of the bottle. And so, and again, depending upon your hygiene and general uh, habits, um, you might get some mold growth or maybe even some slime in the bottom of that bottle if there's some moisture there. Um, uh, You know, the air quality in the workplace is also going to come into play. Uh, So I'm assuming for the sake of discussion that he doesn't work downwind from a chicken slaughter plant uh, where there might be salmonella floating in the air. Um, My advice uh, is to store the bottle inverted, so that it will drain and avoid uh, particles settling into the bottle. Um, for and just as a way of sharing from my own experience, um, I uh, for, to make my coffee, I will. Uh, reheat uh, water uh, in a little uh, Pyrex dish and then pour that over my grounds in my AeroPress. And then I don't wash that. Typically, I will just lay lay it, put it in the sink and I'll turn it upside down in the dish drain, not in the sink, in the dish drain next to the sink, I'll turn it upside down so that the water will drain out. And then I'll reuse that multiple times uh, before it gets uh, put into the dishwasher. So again, the main thing is um, store it inverted so that it drains. Um, And again, uh, wash with soap and water from time to time, uh, weekly at least, and that's certainly what I do with those little uh, coffee dishes. Um, So of the two choices he provides to us, I would go with the first choice over the second choice, that is leaving it open at the desk where it can dry out. Um, uh, Generally speaking, I think uh, getting things dry is going to give you the best risk reduction versus keeping things covered. So in other words, the um, uh, the risks from something settling in are going to be less than the risks of something growing because it's covered. So, uh, so yeah, so th- that, that's, uh, that's my two cents.
0: Awesome. I just want to add on the second part, um, that I answered a similar question about water. Oh um, yes, you did. Yeah, uh, for a to new, life uh, Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I just wanted my favorite quote of all time. So, and, and, that the, um, the, the journalist, uh, Nick Douglas was a little bit snarky in, in his writing, which I loved it. Um, and so the quote, the quote was uh, that I had, what would matter is if like someone had poop on their finger and stuck it in there. (laughs) Um, and, uh, yeah, so he says in a mildly embarrassing phone call, I mentioned that to him, uh, which is, which is true. It wasn't, I was just being kind of snarky about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I, so question, I'm going to go back to your answer to number one. And again, the challenge study that you haven't reviewed yet, um, for cbot so it, it, here it, here's a situation where it's one of those like it depends and it's complicated right mm-hmm. like if we looked at if we looked at coffee and we put it into a, um a I, i'm assuming the one you're looking at is a, a like a, a a low oxygen you know and kind of environment right right like, where
1: you, we we would suspect yeah. that bot could grow right there's yes right. It's,
0: it's an oxygen uh, free environment so so let's so it, it kind of meets all the things that we think would me you know, would would lead to to growth right like there's some level of nutrient in there we we're, we've taken away the oxygen um, we're holding it at lots of different temperatures ambient temperature and and it doesn't and 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 like you like you said here again without seeing the the data what they're showing is that it the risk of of that growth happening is is almost zero and w- so so why what makes what makes the that coffee environment uh any different from canned green beans or canned beets or, or whatever. Is it, is it just that the nutrients that, that I, that you and I are like talking about are being there in this, in this coffee drink really aren't that ideal. Are there, um, are there any microbials in the coffee that, that are just not letting that, um, that spore turn into vegetative cells? Like what, I mean, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Cause I'm, I'm fascinated by this cause this goes back to death wish coffee, right? Like when we right. had an entire conversation um, about this and it might be the the biggest turns out is turns out it's not a not, you know, there, there aren't CBOT risks in the same way that you and I um, might have thought there were.
1: Right. So, well, first of all, there may be uh, naturally occurring compounds in coffee that are antimicrobial, right? Uh, so that yeah. is entirely a possibility. Um, also, there may be an interaction of those compounds with the pH of the coffee. And so this is coffee that, which is at its natural pH, which is not below 4.6, but pretty close, like let's say for the sake of discussion around 5. So the, okay. so, okay. So, so, the, so, that you've got this interaction now of these preservatives as well as the pH, and then maybe lack of nutrients, right? Because they're, Maybe there's sugars there, uh, but the, the the levels are quite low. And so again, this is uh, we don't have uh, we don't have a truly scientific answer. In other words, like let's let's take this this cold brewed coffee and then let's manipulate the pH and then let's add sugar. Right? Let's try to. Push this food in a direction where we will get seabuck growth, right? Because they, that's not the study that they did. The study that they did was, well, let's just take this product as it is and look and see if you get see see if you get growth. So, uh, but but and, and so it doesn't answer the question. Is why it doesn't does not answer the question. Why is there no growth? But the, just answers the question. Is there growth?
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so I have a more practical aspect of this because I don't know enough about. Um, better process control and low acid canned food regulation. So, so if I have this challenge study with my specific product that shows, hey, there is, here's what here's what the growth looks like, and it's and it's essentially non-existent for this specific type of coffee product with the we you know with with the pH as you as you just described somewhere around five, which is as I look at the low acid canned foods, the, the exemptions I guess would be. Uh, Well, a low acid canned food is is any food other than alcoholic beverages with a finished equilibrium pH greater than 4.6 and a water activity greater than 0.85, excluding tomatoes and tomato products, having a finished equilibrium pH less than 4.7. So this is one that it would be looked at as a low acid canned food. If I have this challenge study, does this now help me make the case to – uh, a state regulator or FDA that I sh- do not need to retort this canned product, or or does it matter at all? Is it really just a risk question that helps me dedicate resources, but I'm still going to have to do what I need to do to make a low acid canned food? Do well, you know, like, do you know, you I know don't, what I'm yeah,
1: I know exactly what you're saying, and the, and I don't know the answer to your question. I would hope that the regulatory agencies would listen to the science, um, and that you know, a smart person who knows about Clostridium botulinum um, like a Jenny Scott would weigh in on this um, but it, the question is is it a scientific question or is it a legal question because as you pointed out I think very very clearly from a legal perspective this is a food that uh, that meets the definition and so therefore if it meets the definition it, it does require a process. Um, again I would like to think that the regulatory agencies want to be science based and so if you had evidence that showed that there wasn't a risk that, that you did you don't need a retort process. Now, the question then becomes, well, what is sufficient evidence? Is one study in a peer-reviewed journal right. with one particular formulation enough? Maybe it's enough for this company as long as they have measured that, as long as they have identified the appropriate critical factors and taken, um, you know, uh, and, and a really—I mean, this is again something we talk about in the, the challenge study workshop. Are you sure that you've identified the critical factors and that you're controlling those critical factors in a way that is going to be managed and that the study is truly representative of the world? World of products that you're going to be making um, with this study as the proof that they're safe. So, and that's and that's a much more murky scientific discussion. But again, I would hope that if the company wanted to pursue this, you know, that they could have discussions with FDA, and FDA would be receptive to the science. But again, where, where somebody has to make a, the definition of what's the bar for appropriate science. Is, is this single study enough? If not, what additional studies might be needed, et cetera?
0: Right, 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 and. And that, um, it, what kind of variability do I have, you know, in the, this makes some assumptions, right? Like right. that my pH is always going to be around this five and what happens if it's, if for whatever reason, there's something changes in the, in the bean or something, some, 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 some change, um, does it all ring true at 5.1 or what, you know, whatever those interactions are. Um, all right, cool. That, well, that's interesting. So good feedback. Feedback's good. It helps us. have <laughs> some well, It does. It's, it's good. All right. So um, here is a, uh, a little bit of feedback uh, from someone who says, uh, you can read my message but not my name. And we will uh, come up with a, uh, a name for this individual in a second. Message, I just listened to the most recent episode and would like to have one of your stickers if I still can. I'm willing to pay shipping if that's a concern. I'm within a few kilometers of Montreal, so I think that we can. Opsec, probably- Ben, opsec. <laughs> <laughs> well, it says that we can read the message, not my name. I think we probably, <laughs> I think we could probably get the, the if as long as this deep stick sticker can get to to actual Montreal. I think we could ship it to Montreal, uh, <laughs> not within a few kilometers.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, I, in fact, I already have the uh, I already have the labels uh,
0: printed. So perfect. Um, I also figured that I should contribute something rather than mooch off your goodwill, <laughs> so, which is great. So I have a food safety-related question. How should I expect an open can of condensed milk to behave in a refrigerator? Someone I know likes to use evaporated milk in her coffee. <laughs> Someone I know. <laughs> Uh, This is like how I would describe uh, uh, some something that my wife was doing. Uh, Someone I know, a friend of a friend, likes to use evaporated milk in her coffee. But after opening the can, she tosses it in the fridge without without even covering the. No, 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 I think you're not reading that right. She tosses it in the fridge without even covering the can holes. Uh, Exactly, you're right. Uh, I've read that evaporated milk can be kept up for three days when transferred to an airtight container. So how much greater is the risk and what are the risk factors involved? Um, again, thanks for the podcast and uh, signed. Uh, deep sticker um, variation I, uh, condensed milk. Well, I, evaporated I, milk. I,
1: I already gave this listener a name in my response. Oh. Uh, deep Quebecois. <laughs> I'm not, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly. You can do a much good. better job, but, uh, okay, thanks. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, and so my, let me give you my answer and then you can, you can weigh in. Um, so that we've discussed on the podcast before an app called food keeper, uh, which is uh, from uh, the USDA. It's a pretty, it's a pretty good app. Um, and, it, and 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 again I went I looked for canned foods I looked for dairy products and I couldn't find it but it also has just a search function function and so I just typed in condensed milk and in fact um, uh, that the app recommends that you can keep a can of condensed milk for no more than four to five days in the refrigerator so so first of all I, I, I they, somebody should go through that app and decide whether it's four days or five days because telling somebody four to five days is not helpful I think so um, so 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 the app says four to five days. My suspicion is that that's four to five days for quality, not for safety. Um, I would say certainly um, covering up the can holes is a good idea. Uh, There are probably microorganisms floating around inside your fridge. Um, I don't think if you had a mold spore settle on the top of this Condensed milk that it was going to it's going to grow um, in four to five days, um, but covering up the the air holes is a good idea. Um, it doesn't need to be airtight um, because you're, there's no way you're going to make it airtight. Nor should you, I think, even try to make it airtight again. Uh, but again, the main thing is just prevent reentry of microorganisms. Um, and then the other thing I would say too is if. If you if you you should probably put a date on it because uh, you know again often I will encounter things that have been in my fridge for a while uh, that go moldy. Um, if this got pushed to the back of the fridge and you were uncertain of the date, uh, and if it's if if it's as I'm envisioning it, mold spores settle into the that container. They start to grow. Um, you're going to get a formation of a layer of mold on the top of that condensed milk, and then if you go to pour it out through those tiny holes, you might not even see that. Um, and that would be really disgusting. Um, so uh, and, and potentially risky mycotoxin, potential mycotoxin production. I mean again, this is probably something that gets pushed to the back of your fridge and sits back there for a month. We're not talking four to five days. so so cover it. I would say put it put a date on it, cover it and then use it within within four to five days and, and you should be perfectly fine. so that's that's my advice.
0: Good. okay, so this is one where you did Food Keeper, yep. and I went a different route on this, this All right. Question. So I looked for two things. Uh, for growth for pathogens, oh uh, you were going to do some modeling i di- i didn 't get that far because i didn 't need to okay. so I was like what 's the pH of condensed milk and um there there 's some like variation it's it 's not a low acid food right so right. On the low end, evaporated milk, five point nine. On the high end, six point three three. Yep. Uh, based on some stuff that um, that FDA has published that people use, and then I said, okay, well, I know that evaporated sweetened condensed milk has a bunch of sugar in it. What's the water activity? Water activity, yep. And Don, this is straight out of. Yep. I didn't. Uh, we, we were able to go to um, actual a new document. Um which is a uh, hazard analysis and risk-based preventive controls for human food draft guidance for the industry. Uh, chapter four, preventive controls. this is the guidance uh, document that shows uh, they use uh, condensed milk as uh, as their example and they would list the water they list the water activity below 0.93 to 0.85. Um, and so we're looking at a, I, I would say a low because of the sugar low water activity. Um, and, and I would not from a pathogen standpoint, worry about it, um, supporting uh, growth. It's in the same uh, um, category as dry or fermented sausages, dried venison or cheddar cheese. So that and that's from uh, the link to this is, uh, I'll send it to you, but it is uh, uh, referencing an IMFC IM. I see NMSF doc, yeah, document from 1980 looking at principal groups of foods based on water activity.
1: Okay, so and so because so we we use 0.85 as the cutoff for Staphylococcus growth, but I guess the idea is that the um, the if the water activity is um, uh, less than 0.93, it's not going to support the gr- growth or it's not going to support toxin formation by Staphylococcus. Right. Yeah. That's, yes, that's what I, that's what I believe. So, so are you saying that, that, the, the, it doesn't even need to be refrigerated? What do you, what I
0: cast? would say, like, I would say that, um, that it doesn't need, yeah, that it, unless you're worried about staff, like, yeah, it would, it wouldn't need refrigeration. It would be, uh, it's a non TCS food, right?
1: Well, or refrigerate for quality, right? Yes. Uh, because yes. certainly my cheddar cheese, I keep in the refrigerator.
0: For for quality reasons. Yes. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Well and again I have seen my cheddar cheese go moldy and so certainly again this product as I s as I said it before that the product could for sure go moldy, so um Yeah. So, all right. So, so what's your, so, so what's your, what's your, what's your advice for how long it can stay in the fridge then? Uh,
0: So again, this becomes like, as long as I can drink it and it's not, I think the airtight container is probably for oxidation reasons, right? So as long as I'm I'm slowing down the oxidation uh, of the, um, the milk fat by refrigerating and then trying to keep as much uh, oxygen uh, out of it as possible. And then as you said, looking for mold growth okay, so yep, so that's where – yeah, yeah, so to me that's where where we're at we're in and i'll i'll link to i'll, I'll let me do a little more digging on this, but there's a really nice um uh paper that uh that I think you are your name is on um let me see here uh from i think you're a part of this were not you this uh uh evaluation and definition of potentially yep. hazardous foods yep. uh, from yeah i f d so yep, that's me goes through i, I would apply the same uh same stuff uh that's in that that paper to condensed milk
1: all right very good yeah yeah so that's that's a great i mean i and i recommend that uh that study to people all the time so
0: yeah it's a good one and i mean it helps with this kind of stuff right like this is this is exactly where we need to be in having these uh, having these conversations, and it's it, one of the things I know that um, our friend of the podcast, uh, Nora Nerd, has brought up. Just being able to have these discussions as a regulator on not everything is all the same all the time. What do we, it, it, it says it's milk? Do we really need to treat it as a TCS food or as a non-TCS food in a commercial setting or not? And so, you know, this this IFT document um, really does a nice job helping people understand how to make those decisions. Yep, for sure.
1: So uh, so I have uh, some more feedback here. Um, uh, You want to keep going? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so this is a feedback from our avian friend um, who is uh, you know uh, short and uh, likes ospreys in libraries. So I'm just going to call her our avian friend. Um, and so uh, she says, uh, I know you talked a lot about uh, raw cookie dough. Um, I saw a food company at a conference recently, and I asked them about their process. From what I can tell, they already have packaged flour, uh, packaged in large uh, paper bags, and they heat it in a large oven with fans. They say... Uh, they have several probes to determine the inside temperature and the fans to avoid cold spots, but I'm not buying it. They did say there was an oven temperature variation, but they wouldn't tell me how much. And depending upon where the probes are placed, they could still be missing a ton of cold spots. Uh, this seems sketchtastic to me. I think that's a <laughs> negative term, um, uh, as in like super sketchy. Um, but they sell this product to other companies as quote safe in raw pro- uh, safe in-raw product flour. Uh, They have third-party sampling, but I couldn't find any information on the validation of the design of the oven itself. Um, They weren't concerned about allergens or glutens because the flour was already packaged. Uh, uh, She says that she's seen bulk flour before and the stuff flies everywhere. Anyway, seems like some sort of a recall just waiting to happen. Does this seem legit? Have they really reduced the risk enough uh, to sell this as advertised? Uh, um, how can you talk to a company like this about food safety concerns without raising their ire? I understand they want to make this safe, but it still seems like they're missing some key steps in validation. How do products like this make it to market? Well, the answer to that last question is that they make it to market until they cause a problem. So um, unfortunately, yeah. uh, there, there are regulations, but uh, because FDA doesn't have continuous inspection like USDA, uh, if they are doing something that is you know grossly insufficient, see... Uh, I am healthy. Uh, soy nut butter, for example, um, it may be a long time and there may be illnesses or even deaths before we learn about it. Um, so uh, let me give you my, my take and then you can weigh in. Uh, as, as you and I, Ben, have discussed on the podcast before, uh, because flour is dry, that means that more heat is required for the same level of thermal inactivation. Um, how much more? I think we're still figuring that out. Uh, there's some published data in the literature. It's something that we're also working on in, in my lab. Again, the stuff we're doing in my lab is more like consumer level validation like what you could do in a, in your home toaster oven um and uh, I haven't been in the office lately to talk with my postdoc regarding how her research is going but she was making good progress uh, uh to date so um yeah, so it's good that the company is aware that cold spots exist, um, but our knowledge of how to determine cold spots for dry products, I, I would characterize it as still being in its infancy. A uh, listener to the show and uh, partially my graduate student, uh, Caitlin Cassulli, uh has just uh, submitted an abstract uh, looking at um, some work on pistachio validation and uh, f- ways to... or, or Um, determining cold spots uh, for basically a, a bed dryer for pistachios. And based on the abstract that she submitted to this meeting that I reviewed recently, the location of that cold spot is not always intuitive. And so- I think there's still a lot more that we could learn in terms of finding cold spots in, ro- in nut roasters as well as in um, dry product uh, processing like this. Um, the issue of what they can claim in terms of food safety and what their legal obligation is certainly it's beyond my expertise. Um, as I, as I noted, uh, to our Osprey or to our, our avian friend, um, uh, the, um, if they're claiming that their product is quote unquote safe and somebody gets sick, um, uh, Bill Marler is going to be, um, uh, over them, all over them, like, uh, like flies on poop. Um, how to talk to a company like this, I'm going to say, Ben, I want to, so first of all, I want to hear your perspective on the whole sure. question, but espe- especially if you had had this conversation, what would you, as somebody who knows about communication who's who's more expert in communicating about risk than I am what would you what would you say or what what advice would you have for our avian friend uh, regarding um, you know some tips that she could have in having this discussion with the company at a conference
0: yeah so and I I, I really I really like this question I think we had a um, a, 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 a Adjacent conversation to this, when we were at IAFP with one of our um, listeners who is who is there in, in the room about a, uh, engaging in conversations with produce companies that may not um, believe the risks around uh, around foodborne illness, I, I see this as um, as a little easier spot because you've got someone who has identified that they that they need to at least address the, uh, this risk of, uh, a seminella in, in this flower that they're aiming to make a ready food. And so they've already gone down the path of, um, we need to make sure that we've got some sort of a validated process. The fact that they're able to talk about the, the cold spots and, you know, addressing things that would be concerns, uh, from the outside is, it means to me that they're, they're, um, more open to, to this, the place that I really like to start with all of these conversations and something that I, that I think has has evolved from doing the podcast with you is, um, show, you know, show me the, show me the data, right? Let's look at, uh, together, let's look at how how you have determined that your process is um, is managing risk enough to to call it "quote safe" or make this ready food. And let's look at the assumptions there, and let's talk about the variability that that might come up. And it's no different than the conversation we had about coffee. Um, and but but being able to do so in a way that's not confrontational and, and that's not um in a in a way that's that that comes uh from the from the offensive to get someone's um sort of back up and and be defensive almost like hey I'm really interested what you're doing here sounds really great I'm really interested in how you're doing this and what makes it so so it, you're able to uh, feel comfortable with this claim of, of safe or, or ready, um, flour, And, you know, what, what are the, what are the log reductions that you're, that you're aiming for and, and how are, how, how did you validate this process? And then to, to just sort of sit back and listen and then, and, and peel some of that, um, some of that conversation, uh, back. And this is where, um, where, where hopefully, you you have i mean it it sounds like the, the this company has thought about it and you can have a a real genuine conversation about it and hopefully it's not like well, we sent it out and this is the results that we got from somebody um and which which then may lead to a further conversation um on how do we um you know, how do, how do we further like figure out whether you ask them the right questions kind of thing. But I, I would do it in a real genuine way. Like I'm, I'm really interested in this and tell me how you got to, to the point where you're able to put the, um, put this information on.
1: Good. Thanks. Cool. So, uh, let's talk about rotisserie chicken. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So, uh, so this is, uh, from, uh, Ryan in Cincinnati who says, uh, share all details freely. Hey, guys. Relatively new listener, but enjoy the show. Could you discuss some best practices when it comes to rotisserie chicken purchased from the grocery store? For instance, how long is too long for one of these bad boys to sit in the store's warmer? Sometimes I'll pick up one in the late morning, planning to use it at dinner. Should I remove the meat from the bones immediately and then refrigerate? Or is it better to stick the whole bird in the fridge until I'm ready to make dinner? Um. Uh, he's, and he speculates as to what he thinks is, you know, a higher risk versus a lower risk. Um, he says, you know, and he concludes by saying, I'm sure the best thing to do would be to grab uh, fresh right before use, but that's not always an option. And so um, I guess my comment is as long as the, and I don't know a ton about how these these things work, but as long as the warmer, is set to the appropriate temperature in the store, greater than 140 degrees Fahrenheit, so it's hot holding, it should be safe even later in the day. Um, Depending upon how the store has it set up, uh, there may be some quality degradation and drying out um, as as that meat sits there at 140 degrees. Uh, So um, I don't think the exact refrigeration technique uh, that Ryan is going to use matters too much as long as he has a properly functioning refrigerator. And so again – once again, we'll make a plug that uh, if you don't have a thermometer in your fridge or if, or if you you should you should check the temperature of of your your fridge um, and the food in your fridge, and it should be forty degrees uh, Fahrenheit or below um, basically as cold as possible uh, without uh, f- freezing your food in your refrigerator would be my advice just for for quality reasons um I think that it, uh, and again, I don't have any data here. This is just speculation. But if you separate the meat from the bones, um, it may cool more slowly because you've packed it into a smaller container, so you have a smaller volume. Um, but but the but the temperature is going to change slowly versus if you leave it whole. Assuming that you can keep it covered, um, there there just may be better uh, better uh, heat transfer from that that whole bird because the surface area is greater and you have more spaces in there. Again, I don't uh, I don't uh, I don't know of any science behind that, um, but we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, and then of course, um, if you do uh, uh, go to take the meat off the bones um, and you cross-contaminate it with your, with your hot hands, uh, which is, which is copyright Max Tempkin 2018, uh, and then do temperature abuse that chicken, then that's going to be a problem, right? So, so certainly uh, wash your hands before you do that. If you're going to, if you are going to pick it off the bones and put it into a smaller container. So uh, so that's my that's my perspective Ben.
0: awesome, okay, so uh, I got a couple of things on on this um one is and I sent you a couple of links mm-hmm. to add to show notes um rotisserie, rotisserie i think you you nailed it on the on the temperature side of things um i i would I would go with that the meat itself needs to be above one thirty five mm-hmm. um, and and I think that that's where that you that that's um, one of the things is i've worked with retailers that they are really focused on making sure that they're temping and keeping those logs correctly from a hot holding standpoint it's um I, I if it's above 135 and all points of that meter are above 135 i think you can just hold it and hold it and hold it you, i
1: in your yeah. work with the stores is there quality degradation and drying yes. out okay
0: yeah now what they do to make sure that um, that they do their best on that so um, and you know, hopefully, there's a, a retailer too that that want to chime in on this um, anonymously and in, in feedback. But what I've seen is um, using the clamshell um, cooked rotisserie chicken um, items as really good uh, humidifiers. So they they let a little bit of the purge. From the chicken settle in the bottom, and then you'll see some condensation as it sits in the hot hold warmer, right. um, and, and to to keep it from from drying out. Right. But I okay. think that's yeah. But I think if it gets too hot, you end up with more problems in that area. Okay. So if you're if you're hot holding it at one fifty five, for instance, um, or one sixty five, you, you are more likely to get drying out and toughness as opposed to having it sit in that one thirty five to one one fifty kind of area where. Um, so that's the that's the sweet spot, and that becomes the problem, right? Because right. if it tr- the just the variability on where it is in those hot hold- those hot warmers, um, and what temperature it's holding, I think is um, really really kind of matters. Um, I have j- just going back on, I have some experience on um, the technique when it, when get it, getting getting at home because we do. I it's not often that we buy these rotisserie chickens, but it's not like I, I will buy one a month, maybe twice a month, um, because it's a, it's a meal. It's really quick for us at home and our kids will eat the chicken, um, with, without too much complaint cause they are terrible eaters. So, um, I've done both and I did, I have checked the temperature cause I was a little bit concerned a couple of years ago on taking this really like right from the store, um, hot chicken and putting it into my fridge and there's enough surface area, um, um, what, so what I do is I crack the lid to let a little bit of the heat out because if there is steam that's built up and then re, like re-snap the lid on and then let it sit in the refrigerator. And um, I didn't have – I don't I, – like I didn't log it but – um, a couple hours later, I went and used my, um, digital tip sensitive thermometer to see where the temperature was at. And I got it down below 41 degrees within, within a couple hours enough that I was not worried about, um, any cooling. And I've also taken it off the, the bone, um, cause from a practicality standpoint, that's where, how we typically use it afterwards. Um, and you know, similar to things that we've talked about in, um, Holiday food safety and, and Thanksgiving, doing doing, taking it off the bone, putting it in uh, Ziploc bags and, and just having a lot of surface area, I, I don't have any concern in cool, cooling it at home in either of those methods. Wh- one of the things I did want to highlight was a, a talk that I saw at IAFP last year. Um, during the foodborne outbreak updates where rotisserie pigs and rotisserie chickens came up and this was pre- <laughs> <laughs> yeah and this is so, a CFP issue now you know, right it is and I'm really into it so so this was presented by Bonnie Kistler um, from FSIS and I know it's come up in, in CFP and, and there's a couple of things here. there's been multiple outbreaks. And we talked about just now best practices, right? A retailer that's focused on logs and focused on making sure that they're, they have temperature control. And the thing that we haven't highlighted, which is nothing that, um, that our listener um, – do we did we come up with a name for our listener? We said we could share all details. Oh, right?
1: I, I just called him by his name and location. So, yeah, Ryan, so, yep, yeah. Ryan, Ryan so in r- Cincinnati.
0: So, Ryan, the thing that this is really beyond control – Um, Well, I mean, let me go back and talk about that in a second. It's most of the contamination issues from outbreaks have really been in the retail standpoint and either improper temperature control or something we haven't talked about, which is cross-contamination. So my experience in in those delis where typically this rotisserie is happening is there's a lot going on. Um, and the raw chicken and and uh, cooked sh- chicken are all kind of in the same area, so you need to have good standard operating procedures for for cross contamination, and um, especially if it's a chicken that maybe may come in frozen, which is I think typically the case. So it, it'll be thawed in a prep sink, and then. Um, and then put into the rotisserie rack, so that it, that thawing process can can lead to cross contamination issues. But I guess, I mean, I hadn't really thought about it until talking about it. But I, but I guess if, if you were really concerned about this, um, if you don't know what the temperature is when you took it off, you know, out, that a reheat step above one thirty five is going to take care of the the vegetative. Um, cells and and I guess if you're really concerned about it, t- treating it as it's a raw chicken product and reheating it above 165 before cooling it um, would would be a control measure you could do in home in the home. Not something that I do, right? But, but could be, I mean would would add you know uh, another level of. Protection if that was some, it was a high risk population or someone was really concerned about it. Right.
1: Well, and and you didn't care as much about quality, right? Like, I mean, or or if you were going to put it into a stew or soup or something. But, but yeah, it's going to lower, it's probably going to lower quality and increase safety.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of the things just before we leave this that I thought was really interesting in that. Um, outbreak update that FSIS gave was the issue on the rotisserie cooking timing being linked to the size of the chicken. A larger chicken is going to take more time. So you have the standard operating procedure that says, you know, whatever, X number of hours, I'm going to be able to roast it. But all of a sudden, I have a a chicken that's uh, 20% larger or 10% larger and not really not placing that... um, that decision in the hands of the, uh, of the food employee to be like, oh, well, how much longer do I have to do it, but re- really being able to focus on the using a thermometer probe to make sure. But also FSIS's you know, um, lessons learned were um, working with suppliers to re-standardize or do a better job standardizing those chicken sizes.
1: Yeah, so. yeah, and and I would if you if, you know it's uh, you, I would say we'll link to the the FSIS PowerPoint uh, PDF, uh, and it's definitely worth looking at if you really want to nerd out over food safety. Um, and one of the things that I didn't even think about, but that makes perfect sense. I'm just looking at one of the conclusion slides on the chicken uh, rotisserie chicken outbreak. One of the recommendations is adjust holding temperatures in coolers to minimize ice on the chicken, so starting temperatures for cooking are more consistent, and that's a huge thing that we don't always think about. Is that the starting temperature makes a big difference if you're starting with colder chicken versus warmer chicken that colder chicken is going to be potentially undercooked so and then again as you pointed out chicken size is important as well so
0: yeah absolutely so good no great question lots of talk about lots of other stuff
1: Yep. Well, we got some more some more feedback um, that I uh, I I responded to the person. It's really more chemical safety issues, and so uh, we don't need to talk about that. I do I do want to have a a brief follow up um, on um, into the teal, which is an episode of the podcast Judge John Hodgman, which a a listener asked us about. Uh, I did finally have a chance to listen to that podcast, and they gave uh, some pretty good food safety advice. It basically we covered this already with the use of tongs and spatulas on the surface, and whether you use a tong or spatula and flipping versus, um, as, as the, the listener, uh, the, the person that wrote into that podcast says, whether you do a mid wash where you take the spatula that you've used to flip and you wash it. I think we covered it pretty well, um, on, uh, on our show when we, when we talked about that. Um, the, I think that they mostly get it right on the, the podcast episode as well. Uh, they, they do talk about the spatula. That's also my preferred spatula, which is the fish style spatula, which is a sort of a, an unusually shaped but highly efficient one that I use. Uh, every day uh, when I'm when I'm cooking eggs for breakfast, I used it this morning. It's it's really good. The only only criticism I would have is that uh, Jesse Thorn talks about cooking to eliminate uh, mad cow, um, which um, you know is not a risk right. and is not eliminated by cooking. So, um, but but for the most part, Hodgman gets the details right in terms of uh, pronouncing the names of bacteria like Salmonella correctly, and and he mostly gets. I think he he, he gets the science uh, pretty pretty well right. So, again, that's an episode uh, three seventy one. Of the Judge John Hodgman entitled Into the Teal, and the discussion about food safety starts about midway through uh, that episode. So, yeah, and uh, you can learn stuff about uh, um, uh, Harry Connick Jr. and um, uh, Sting, and uh, it's it's uh, it's it's, it's, I listened to the whole episode; it was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, well, two quick hits before we go. One is there's there's been um, we, a little bit of Twitter back and forth related to a whole list of products that have been recalled um, due to some salmonella and whey powder and um, and so I I, I don't'll we'll, we'll link to the to the recalls. Um, no illnesses associated with this um, with this recall right right as of now that I that I know of. I may be um, missing something but again, Something that we've talked about a lot, and I think just as from an emerging issue standpoint, um, the more we look for pathogens in in ingredients and how widespread some of these ingredients are are being used is really fascinating to me. That whey powder that may have salmonella that comes from one producer is in like four hundred or six hundred different products from like fifty different large manufacturers, um, and and just the the re, the cost of recall for this is is sizable. I I would look at like these are you know Ritz Crackers and Twinkies and I mean it's not Twinkies but what, whatever lots of uh, I don't want to get the the names uh, incorrect and make you know say something that's recalled that isn't but just lots of different snack foods and meat products that use whey powder that it, it's it's always fascinating to see it almost almost similar to what we saw with um, the peanut, uh, corporation of America, peanut paste being involved in so many different products. Well,
1: and, and then I think after that, there was a hydrolyzed vegetable protein, uh, product that was recalled. Right. That was, uh, again, often used on snack foods post process. So you take some potato chips and then after you fry them, you add this uh, HVP powder uh, as a, you know, as a carrier or with other things in it. Um, and it's just in everything. And, and again, it just points to the, the nature of our connected food supply it points to the nature of when a company screws up if they have some product an ingredient that is very common and used in a lot of different things and they don't have good or they have massive batch sizes um it just can lead to huge problems like this and so yeah i mean certainly the it's ritz crackers it's been in some other baked goods um it's uh, it's if it's it's yeah we're just going to keep seeing this uh because this is just in everything But again, also we should point out this is a recall. This is not an outbreak, right? We don't have illnesses yet, right? Uh, And we we may not have illnesses, um, but but it 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 just has to do with uh, the nature of the food supply.
0: Well, and let's uh, good segue into one where we do have illnesses, and um, one massive cyclospora outbreak Uh, uh, linked linked to Del Monte uh, fresh uh, vegetable trays, and so this one two hundred and thirty plus illnesses as of. Um, last Thursday, the nineteenth of, of July, um, just tons of different products that, that that are recalled and and just linked to broccoli and cauliflower and celery sticks and, and uh, you know I think with these trays, um, this becomes a an epidemiological issue. It's like well, we link it to the trays? But trying to find what the source and then um, you know essentially try to, try to try to learn from that is becomes a problematic when you've got so many different vegetables and then at the same same time um, uh, um, not not linked uh, as of yet uh, to the same suppliers, but McDonald's uh, has uh, recalled a whole bunch of um, uh, sa- well, not recalled I guess, but alerted around uh, around salads and and we're looking at another hundred and sixty three people uh, linked to to cyclospora so um again, not. At, at this point epidemiologically not linked to each other uh, but uh, you know two big cyclospora outbreaks
1: well and and in fact explicitly FDA and CDC have said that they are not linked right so right. they 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 do not appear to be linked at this point it's just again if I had to speculate without data, I would say that these are both vegetable products they were both sourced from probably uh, Central or South America, and where we you know we 've had cyclospora problems historically, and so uh, there probably was some problem in the production practices uh, and we still don 't know um, you know exactly w- why we get cyclospora problems, but I suspect it has something to do with contaminated water supply. And uh yeah, it's a, it's a it's you know, it's a these are big these are big outbreaks and the good news is is that they are probably past, right? So, you know, the I think uh, McDonald's is still um, you know, um just basically just decided to pull all salads from all of those restaurants that are served as part of that particular supply chain and uh and and it and and it looks like the outbreak is 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 done as well as the Del Monte outbreak, but yeah, it's uh it's you know we we've got to figure out this cyclospora thing and figure out where it's coming from and get get good good food safety practices in place at those farms because otherwise we're just going to keep having these problems.
0: Absolutely. Um and it's it's one that um I again I don't think I don't know. I my my gut feeling is it's not on it's not on the rise. It's just again our our ability to link these cases together is getting so much greater that that we're the cyclospora has been out there um, for a long time when we see these, these types of things. But um, but now we've got you know two separate things going on at the same time.
1: Well, and, and I, I still remember when cyclospora and raspberries first hit, and nobody even knew what cyclospora was, right. right? This is an organism that has only come across our food safety radar. I mean, people, public health people have known about it for a while, but, but in terms of a foodborne parasite um, that we talk about in the food supply, it's really only been around since I think the cyclospora and raspberries outbreak was the 1990s. Have I got that right?
0: Correct. Ninety six, yeah, yep.
1: Yep. Um, and and again, it may be linked to production practices. I don't know the extent to which we were sourcing. Obviously, we were sourcing raspberries from Guatemala in nineteen ninety six. Uh, I don't know. I, I, my recollection is that was a relatively new endeavor uh, that had only been in existence for a couple of years. I, I don't know. People have probably been getting people have obviously been getting sick with cyclospora for a long time, but the but the link to fresh produce and the food supply may may. Have a connection to um, uh, basically growing food, uh, growing produce, which is not processed in locations of the world where the water supply is less than uh, the quality that it, that it is here in the U.S. Right, and so if if that um, if that if that industry has increased, then that could be part of what's driving this, a significant part of what's driving these these outbreaks.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and. And this is this is one um, where it takes the I think the entire food safety solution kind of investigation world to to answer this because the epidemiologists are really really great at tying these things together, and we we need to keep engaging on okay now let's go find out what the what, what the real cause is, um, and and let's what what other data can we glean from. The um, the folks that have consumed it that might help us with with those those ideas, and, and cyclospora is not something where we're going to get some consumer handling not likely going to increase the the issue. It's it's really about knowing more and more about what the what the source was and trying to parse out um, the things that didn't make people sick that they might have consumed that are the ones that you know linked to the ones that they have. The the, the last thing I want to Talk about is like this has been just a week of of illnesses and outbreaks. So, I mean, usually we're talking about one or two big things, but w- there are 90 salmonella uh, illnesses linked to raw turkey. Um, and, and again, not not knowing exactly what the um, you, you know, what the factors are in this. And then uh, crab meat from Venezuela linked to to Vibrio. And like there's just I mean, right now there there is more to talk about in the world of food safety than others.
1: And, and yet we spent the whole episode doing listener feedback, Ben. What's wrong know. with us? We love our listeners. Well, but I mean, I don't know, I don't know necessarily there's, there's anything to talk about, right, with, with any of these yeah. outbreaks because we don't really know what's, what's happening yet, right? Yeah, no, you got it.
0: Well, I think that might be a show. That's
1: a, that's a heck of a show. That's a two-hour uh, bonus uh, summertime episode.
0: Uh, yeah, we, we were like nailing, nailing things here. <laughs> well, the good, the good news
1: is that we'll we'll talk again, and uh, maybe we'll know more about all of these uh, evolving outbreaks.
0: Yeah, and if we didn't get to feedback, I think we got to all the feedback. I, we
1: got to all the feedback where I promised the people we talk about yeah. on the show. Perfect.
0: So, yeah. Good. Well, I'll keep sending in feedback. And like I mentioned at the start of the uh, podcast, if you have stories you want to share with us about things that you've seen or illnesses that you've experienced or just really fun things that you want to write, like a paragraph and narrative about um, – uh, like an actual event, then uh, that you've got some inside knowledge on, send it, send it on, uh, and I know that there are lots of um, environmental health specialists, the, the folks that are on the front lines that listen to the to the podcast, and you guys have the best stories, so send them on, and we'll we'll talk about them on the air. Cool. All right. Well, Don, um, thanks again for uh, for doing this, and let's uh, let's do it again in a couple of weeks. Sounds good. Bye bye. Bye bye.
1: Yeah, so is it – what do you think – what do you think is going on with this whole – is this just summertime? Is it
0: – I mean – I think so. It's global warming? Think, no, I think it's – we've got really good people that are finding that. Ah, okay. I, like I, I think that there's – it's either getting better, like the resources that they, that CDC and local health departments and state health departments have to put into it. Uh, are the, the amount of time that they need to do per outbreak is reducing because of technology that we're just – they're able to spend more time on other clusters. That's my guess. Mm. Or one of the factors. I mean, it's yeah. you not know, no, the it's, whole thing. But, yeah. Um, cool, cool. All right. So this one is yours. Indeed, 160. And I sent you a couple of title uh, options, but yep. there's probably some other ones there. Yep. Um. And I think I sent all the – everything we talked about, I sent you links. Yep. So we're all good on yep. that. All right, so 2 weeks from today is the 6th of August. How does that look for you?
1: Uh, I am going to DC
0: oh, Florida, yeah, that's right. for the FSPCA. And I am um, When are you leaving?
1: Uh, my train is not until 12:30, so we could do a morning.
0: Let's do it. So I'm same same schedule.
1: Are you going to FSPCA?
0: I am not so FSPCA um, is a little frustrating because the, usually there's oh. like here's a doodle poll here are dates and um, they scheduled dates for a workshop that I had scheduled back in January that I didn't get to tell them that I couldn't go. They're like here it is. this is the day that it's happening. So yeah so I'm not, so I'm not going. okay fair enough. You missed you missed the last one so I think we're <laughs> we're even. Yeah, but I went to the annual conference. I know I've never been to the annual conference.
1: It's, it was good. It was good this year. Actually, it was really good. good. I, I I think I, I don't know if I texted you, but you it was a, it was a good. It was good. It was it was really. Uh, I'm feeling good about what we're doing in terms of uh, training and and all that good stuff. So uh, yeah, I, I was I was very uh, very happy.
0: Good, and I mean the whole I think the the whole thing is it is in a place where a few years ago, a couple of years ago, I didn't think that we would get to. Like people are getting along. There's stuff that's coming out, like the the training and all the add-ons and the processes is going well. I think it's it's done. It's been done in a much more coordinated way than than like uh, other my other experiences. But I wasn't around for like seafood Hassup or juice Hassup or any of the other like the meat Hassup stuff. Yeah. So, but it's, I, I, I agree. I think it's going and it's got there's good people
1: there. Hey, could we could we do eight thirty yeah. on the sixth? Uh, just uh,
0: to give me a little bit more time. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Eight, 30 years ago. Um, I was in my calendar. And then on, yeah, so I'm leaving on the 7th in the morning to go to Rhode Island. And oh, then okay. I'm, oh, right. Another one of those um, trainings that yeah. like you did before? Yep. And then I'm back, yeah, then I'm back here late on the 8th. And then we have uh, one, of the, one of my mo- most favorite things in all day, uh, faculty retreat on the 9th. Mm. Retreat away. And then my parents are coming. Oh, wow. Yeah, for for a week. So, cool. Yeah. So anyway, we'll get the the six is perfect because no one's I've, like it works perfect. Perfect. Good. Uh, cool. That's it. I'm going All to. Right. Uh, I'm going. I'm going to go. I'm going to uh, go talk to John and Anna in the in the <laughs> car at twelve o'clock. like, yep. See, could not get through a whole ep- episode. <laughs>
1: ask, ask John about that that freaky beard. I
0: I'm going to mention. I, mean, I, I want to know something. what the story is. It's – you know what? He's uh, – someone asked – I think the best part was someone uh, mistook him for Randy Phoebus with the beard. Whoa. Yeah. That's <laughs> uh, funny. So um, I'm going to – so and then John's response was Randy's copied my beard. Well, John's beard is
1: different though. Randy is, Randy is more like a full Santa beard. John's is like a weird – like narrow, creepy hipster. Dad. Yeah, you know, I love it's, it. It's, it's it's a good look on on him. Um, but it's it's a, he's a little like Phoebus. Phoebus just looks like a Santa. Uh, like John looks scary. Like he like he looks like he'd knife you. You
0: know? Yeah. Like Dave, yeah. I'm gonna send you a picture <laughs> of Jim the Anvil Neidhart, who <laughs> was a uh, a wrestling heel from uh, the WWE. Uh, now the WWE But was the WWF And his John's beard reminds me Of Jim the Anvil Neidhart Oh yes Yes that, <laughs> Totally Absolutely um, So John's getting ready to, to be a wrestling heel There you go it, And heel's like bad guy right Yeah Heel's he'll, the bad guy was, a,
1: What are the good guys called
0: uh, I think they're the, oh, this, They're just the, the good guys Good guys okay Wrestling Yeah Good guys. No, not goodie bags. <laughs> they're uh I don't talk to them. My, yeah, my th- called the good guys.
1: Okay. My, well, my my favorite thing about the WWF is that uh they're not the WWF anymore because they right. lost the battle with the World Wildlife Federation.
0: <laughs> it's the greatest. Yeah, so the so <laughs> heel in professional wrestling, uh heel also known as rudo in lucha libre. Is a wrestler who portray, portrays a villain or a bad guy and acts as an antagonist to the faces. Oh, it's the faces, the heels and the faces. Oh, uh, okay, that's right. They're the good guys, the faces.
1: Yeah, because they have beautiful faces.
0: Yeah, you got a uh, yeah, you got an upfront face right here. <laughs> but, <laughs> all right, I gotta I gotta go shower and stuff. Uh, all right, um, I will uh, I will talk to you later. All right, bye-bye. bye bye. Bye.